Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. A lot to get to on today's show. And the reality is we're going to start the show a little differently because I have just had a day. And it's funny because it's beautiful outside. And the weather is beautiful outside. So I don't know if it's in the air. I don't know if uh, it is a seasonal mood disorder I gotta be honest with you guys. I had a hell of a day, and not not and listen. I we all have hell of a days. It's not that. I woke up this morning at about five forty-five to go wake up my oldest daughter, and I just had the that that kind of intrusive thought that just wrecks your morning. That's had the kind of thing, and it's and listen. This is all kind of you know one of my recent missives as trying to be a more responsible adult, a better husband, a better a better fun no, debtor. Good lord, uh, Freudian slip. A better dad. All this stuff has been to really take take stock of my mentals, as it were. And about a week ago, I realized that I'd been, for a couple of months, pretty seriously depressed. And it was really rough. And the cool thing about waking up from a, uh, a, a, a bit of a, a bout with depression is that you start, it just kind of resets. And you feel good. And you start to feel good. But inevitably, anybody that has struggled with mental health or, uh, you know, in tune with their mentals, so to speak there's a rubber band snapping back moment, and that was this morning. And I'm so lucky because now that I am uh, in the middle stage of life, I have, I've realized that, you know, those kind of things don't just happen to people with everything. And I do consider myself a man to be exorbitantly blessed. I didn't know life could be this good. I have a beautiful wife, wife a woman of my dreams. I have three daughters who every day make me feel better about humanity in my own existence. I have a dog that I love with all my heart. I have family across the board who I I care deeply about. I have my cabin boys who are my best friends in the world, my best friends since I was 14, Nate. I have so many good things in my life. I got to tell you, man, today that's not what was going on in my, my head. And so that rubber band snapped back for me today. And, you know, I know through now being 38 years old, I know now that my best course of action when I'm in a really dark place is just to find the things that unlock happy me and that take away that anxiety and that, that, um, that dread in that, um, that depression, that feeling of that weight, that pressure, 
And so I I noodled around on a, a ukulele, which I can't play for crap. I have three chords. I've got I got three chords. I can kind of strum it a little bit, but um, I've really never gotten better at it. But here's the hope. I, I'm, I'm working on that. I spent a little extra time with Mongo today. I'm very lucky to have a wife that I could go up to and say, man, I feel like crap today. And so... I did everything. I went. I got into music. I got into, I did a little cardio today. And so I just got to say, one, I feel incredibly better. So this is not, I don't, you know, I please don't think that it's a, a cry for help or it's not. But I just realized that, you know, 21-year-old Nick didn't have those things. 21-year-old Nick would have continued to do things that were either self-destructive or self-harm or I would, I would just lock away me. And it, and it got me thinking about, I don't know why I feel the need to say this, but if you are going through something, if you're going through a moment of depression or anything, uh, it's a vibe check day. So quite frankly, I just hope you're doing good. I hope you guys are thriving, surviving, and all that stuff. And I hope you're okay. And just know if you're not, it's okay. Just know if you're not, I got you, people got you. And, you know, the cliche in this moment is to say, well, there's help. And there is. And that always starts with the person who needs help reaching out for help. And that's really difficult. It's been, it's still difficult. I'm 38. It's really difficult. But I just, the the thought of today, as I was dealing in the middle of this storm, in the middle of a hurricane, feeling like the worst person on the planet, feeling like uh, I'll never get ahead, all the things that... That, that I use and weaponize against myself has continued to pound, just continued to this too shall pass. So it is a vibe check day. I hope you're doing well. I, I plan on having a really good show. I do feel better, but just having that rubber band snap back this morning, it made me realize that sometimes in this format, we just don't do enough real. We don't really speak enough to what we're going through. And a lot of that is we want to be your distraction. And I am fully prepared to be your distraction. And I am fully prepared to be a guy, at Nick Wilson says, if you want to go ahead and send something or if you want, I don't know if my DMs are open. I don't really know how that works. I'm a married man and I'm, I'm 40 and I'm obsolete in the world, okay? But the, re- the reality is uh, there is somebody out there and there is somebody you are not alone because that's the worst feeling in the whole bleep storm that is whatever goes on between your ears is feeling you're alone. So you're not. Now, with that being said, we're going to get to the show. We're going to do the next five hours, and now I'm willing to be your distraction. For whatever reason, I felt that was important to say. But um, as the combine starts, I will tell you this is 100% one of my favorite times of year. And I know that the combine itself is a bunch of empty calories. I'm going to watch a guy run a 40. It's not going to mean a damn thing. I I absolutely do believe and and espouse the opinion that tape is really what matters. I believe that to be true because I've seen good football players drop in the draft for, I mean, just no friggin' reason. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's dumb. That being said, I love every second of it. And I was on just every single moment. I was listening to Andrew Barry like he was preaching the gospel today. Like he was testifying to the football gods. The man said very little. He said a few things that we're going to get into in this hour and a few things that we're going to ask Daniel Jeremiah about at four o'clock. But I thought it was interesting because I've been thinking a lot about the Nick Chubb situation. And, you know, when Daryl and I got into this previously 
And when anybody gets on, it becomes a really loaded conversation because we love Nick Chubb. And so I think Andrew today did a really good job of walking the line at just where where the Browns are, where Nick is. And so I want to play his first answer. This is Andrew Barry today talking about the Nick Chubb talks and Nick Chubb's rehab. I understand that you know Nick is a you know a popular discussion point. I met when I said about him at the end of the season. You know any conversations that we have with him or his reps, honestly, will stay between us. If anything were to change with the status, you know you guys would be the first to know when that does happen. He's done a great job. Yeah, you guys know Nick. He works his tail off. He does everything in his power to to make sure that he can recover as quickly as possible. It still is very early, and we're what six months away from training camp. So to say anything more definitively than I did in the middle of January it would really it would probably be inaccurate so procedurally I think there's a little clue at the end there I think the Nick Chubb thing one way or another probably has to be uh, resolved by the start of the new league year so that's coming up uh, middle of March it's usually I think it's March 14th this year but usually it's March 14th 15th 16th 17th so there is time with this I'm not really sweating this but there is that kernel of doubt in my head and some of it is just and, and some of it's just cliche, right? Well, Nick Chubb's a running back, and analytics doesn't really value a running back the same way. Well, Nick Chubb's going to be 29 in December. Um, there's a myriad of little, like little cliches. The, the running back position has never been more devalued. Nick Chubb is a run-first guy. He is a brilliant runner, but they've never really explored his value in the pass game. And really, analytics loves dual-threat uh, running backs, guys who can do a little bit of both. All-purpose running backs, I think is a better way to put it. So all those cliches are really the kernel of doubt. The reality is, I think I know how damn good Nick Chubb is. I think the Browns know that he's more than a running back. And even though teams like to use things like, well, we just it, when it comes down to football, that's all we really care about here. We don't, you know, we're not sentimental. We don't make emotional decisions. And I think that's mostly true. I think I think the Cleveland Browns are really almost to a, a state of paralysis. They pay attention to the the messaging of their fans and what their fans say back to them. And I think they realize it would have to be the highest DEFCON or lowest DEFCON. I don't really know how any of that crap works. It would have to be the highest level situation to to get to a point where those two parties don't like, they're not together for next year. Nick's probably not making a lot of money on the open market because he's coming off this injury, and he's probably not likely to be healthy for the full year. And from the Nick Chubb, or from the Brown side of things, um, because you don't have to pay him all that money, you kind of get a player that could really overperform a contract and give you, like, surplus value. So there's a lot of really smart reasoning in why Nick Chubb's going to be a Cleveland Brown next year. But that 1% of doubt, right? The 4% of doubt that I might have, now I'm going to do Steiner math for you all. The 4% of, of doubt is cliche stuff. Generic analytics, hates running backs, all that kind of crap. The remaining, that, that extra percent of doubt is simply, you still are talking about a player who is a prideful guy, who has an agent, who might have their own agenda, who might have their own concerns about Nick Chubb going forward, maybe something like the offense he sets in. And so I am as confident as I can be that Nick Chubb is going to be on the Cleveland Browns. 
But I realized that my biggest fear, and I think it's Browns fans' biggest fear, is not just, well, is is the contract situation going to get in the way of that relationship? It's not just losing Nick Chubb. I think it's equal parts moving on from Nick Chubb to the unknown, meaning moving on from Nick Chubb for, like, uh, Jerome Ford. And I really like Jerome, probably more than most. I think he was incredibly productive last year, and that's as his first real exposure on the field because two years ago he was kind of blocked by Kareem, and we didn't see a lot of Jerome in meaningful action. So the guy, I think, had like 1,100 combined yards last year, something like that. I know he went over 1,000 yards in total. So I'm I'm pretty plucky about what Jerome can do. I don't want to I don't want to put it all on Jerome because even though I like the player, I don't think he's a bell cow back. So that's one part of it. Here's the other one. I I think the Browns are really smart, and I think they understand that there are some guys you can go ahead and take a victory lap on if you move move on a year too early. But there's always the risk that you you didn't. You didn't move on at the right time, and then that guy is playing well for somebody else around you or somebody else in your conference or division or just the NFL in general. And I think the Browns understand it would be pretty disastrous if next year you end up taking a step back, Jerome maybe doesn't fill the shoes, and then Nick Chubb's balling out in Green Bay. That's not a good – or Chicago or any other place. 216-474-0092, which brings me to the point. I'm 95% confident that Nick Chubb is going to be back in brown and orange next year. But I feel like people who've just slammed the door on it forget it is a business and this is not long-term going to be an organization that values bell cow backs like Nick Chubb. What's your confidence Nick Chubb's going to be back? I want to play more on this because I want to explore a little bit more on that conversation about moving on too early versus too late and, and pinching pennies for the Cleveland Browns. If Nick Chubb was coming off another 1,500-yard season, I actually think I'd be more scared because then he's going to be looking for that next contract. The Browns are going to be looking at that $4 million guarantee, or sorry, the, the guaranteed money this year just in general and trying to spread that out and restructuring, and that could get really contentious. But because Nick is coming off an injury, I actually think it gives you a much better chance of retaining him. And it really comes down to, does Nick Chubb's agent this week, does he get people saying, oh, they're only going to give you $4 million guaranteed with incentives? We'll give you six. And whether that matters to Nick Chubb. And what's cool is, and this is actually, to me, one of the real the real healthy points with the Browns and us, the fans, the media, with Nick Chubb, is that dude gets a benefit of doubt that I don't know anybody else in, in in the organization gets. And we we listen, we've been left a lot. All right? <laughs> like we we have been abandoned. All right? LeBron twice. Albert Bell. Manny I'm not gonna go through all the damn names. I'm not doing it to you today. We got massive agita about Donovan Mitchell. So we are a we are a group of people who are a little suspicious when it comes to trusting athletes to stay here and be our boo forever, okay? But like with Chubb, I think the way he goes about it makes us feel so much better that like if he does drive a hard line and let's say he and the Browns couldn't meet and and let's say the Browns decide to move on from him, all right? Again, not the most likely thing. I, I said about a 5% chance in, in my own head 
in my imprecise Ivy League bowling green brain. But if you do, I think I think Nick I think this would be the rare time where I think it would look a lot worse on the organization because they're in a, a pretty healthy cap situation and they would look like they're pinching penny uh, pinching pinching pennies. That was that's a drop. Um but pinching pennies whereas Nick I think there'd be a lot of empathy for running backs because let me just tell you this, the war on running backs in the NFL has never been more reductive and stupid. And I can I can point to a few running backs not getting tagged. Uh Josh Jacobs, I'm not I'm not really hot on Josh Jacobs not being tagged. But like that's a guy who I think has been so underused for most of his or, uh, sorry misutilized. I don't even know if that's a poorly utilized. That's but words are my friend. But poorly utilized. That that's a guy who if he goes in that second contract to the right spot, I think Josh Jacobs could be one of those rare running backs in a second contract that you can build your team around and that you can have a significant amount of success. Probably going to need to be in the NFC because the AFC is just so stocked with potential franchise quarterbacks, but Again, Josh Jacobs probably should have been franchise tagged. 15 years ago, Josh Jacobs was franchise tagged. The most ridiculous one to me is is Saquon Barkley. Like Saquon Barkley, and I get the 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 discourse between Saquon and the Giants has not been good. Last year it was a huge uh talking point and he was a big part of the uh conversation where apparently he and Nick Chubb and some of the other running backs got a big conference call to talk about what they could do. The problem is they just signed the CBA, so good luck with that. But, like, I don't know how the Giants – because to me, like, I'm cool with theories. I'm cool with generalizations. Yeah, you know, the uh, league average replacement running back versus the 13th best running back in the NFL, that's probably not that huge of a discrepancy, right? Saquon Barkley is legitimately one of the eight most talented running backs in the NFL. And Nick Chubb is one of the eight most talented running backs and dominant running backs in the NFL. I don't know how you let running backs go like that and hit the open market. And again, I don't, that's all I'm saying is happening with Chubb, but the fact that Saquon Barkley is potentially going to hit free agency here in mid-March, and everybody's, oh, well, the Giants intend to re-sign him. I intend to do a lot of things I don't end up doing. Teams all the time, I mean... What was the Mary Kay report yesterday? Listen, we'd love to have Joe Flacco back and Zadarius Smith back, but they're going to go explore their potential there in in March. But, you know, we're going to leave the door open. So the Browns hypothetically intend to welcome those guys back at their price. But the Saquon Barkley thing, I can't fathom a league. We're an elite running back, the most dangerous weapon. We have saw what, I mean, look at what San Francisco did with a healthy McCaffrey this year. The guy was 160 total yard type performance in the Super Bowl. The guy was the reason why San Francisco was able to steal time of possession and play keep away from Pat Mahomes for the first half of that game. And not going back to that guy is probably why Kyle Shanahan lost his second Super Bowl to Pat Mahomes in about four years. So the reason I'm bringing up Saquon is I want to tie this together with what we were talking about in that first segment. If I think if you told most Browns fans, hey, we just can't reach agreement with Nick. We're not sure how healthy he's going to be next year. His agent feels like he's going to have a better market. 
than what we had in mind for him. I would look at that and I would go, okay, I don't love that because I don't love going from Nick Chubb to Jerome Ford. I don't love going from Nick Chubb to Pierre Strong. I like both those backs. I, I Nick Chubb's the move the needle kind of guy. Now, if you said, all right, we're going to go from Nick Chubb to Saquon Barkley, and the reason why I bring that up is one of my best friends is was just kind of sent out like, hey, should the Browns go after Saquon Barkley? And in my head, I was like, well, he probably fits the offense going forward with Deshaun more than Nick Chubb does. But then I went through all the reasons why it's not going to happen. And so it's it's the Browns are in this precarious situation where I don't know anything could soften the blow of letting Nick Chubb go for nothing, right? Meaning you're going to go from Nick Chubb to Jerome Ford. I don't even know going from Nick Chubb to Saquon Barkley would completely eliminate the blow. But I think they have to be cognizant. It's not just in a vacuum, what kind of PR damage are we going to take for moving on for Nick Chubb? And the other thing, because I, I think Daryl's pointed this out, other people, well, the Browns aren't afraid of PR blowback. Yeah, there's a difference in adding a player like Deshaun with all the accusations, all the stuff that was that he was going through when they traded for him, hoping that his play on the field would would go ahead and basically make people forget about the bad stuff. There's a difference between that and letting a beloved symbol, well, the guy who I think per, like I think I think Nick Chubb took over for Joe. I think Joe was the symbol of Cleveland football at every moment, right? He was the he was the he was the um, weather vane. You just look up for Joe. Where's Joe? All right, he's pointing that direction. I'm with Joe. And the Browns, I I'm, now that now this is a generic thing, and the Browns took advantage of that. There were a lot of years, and I'm not talking about the Haslam Browns. There were a lot of years where people where they just fell back. Well, we're gonna throw Joe out there. He's gonna talk about this idiot head coach we just hired, and that's gonna buy us time. And I think Nick Chubb has taken over for Joe. I think Joe perfectly encapsulated everything Browns fans in this blue-collar town wanted the Browns to be. And I think that's now Nick. So I thought it was interesting. You know, we played Andrew Barry in that first segment, talking about Nick Chubb's talk, you know, the, the talks, the contract talks with that, the, the rehab conversation. I thought it was really interesting to hear Andrew Barry talk about the run game without Nick Chubb after the uh, after Nick Chubb got hurt last year. You know, we were pleased with how the run game turned out throughout the year. Obviously, Nick's, you know, one in a million, and, and maybe he's one in a billion, actually. And so we're not going to get the, you know, consistent explosive runs that you get with the best back in football. But we also do firmly believe that the run game is predominantly predicated on the strength of the offensive line and then, you know, the actual scheme. Obviously, when you have a difference maker like Nick and someone who can create at the level that he can, he can truly elevate, you know, that area of the game. You know, but we did have to learn to run without him, and, you know, we were able to do it, you know, effectively enough, but obviously Nick is a difference maker. I mean, between Jerome Ford and Kareem Hunt, they did have roughly 1,600 yards total of their backs and 18 touchdowns. And so I can see how really smart analytics people would go, that's Nick Chubb production. You got 18 touchdowns, you got 1,600 yards. Here's the problem. Um, they weren't consistent, and it wasn't even. And at least when it came to Jerome, Jerome really good at making big plays out of nothing. 
But from run to run, he was not consistently generating the kind of yardage you need to do to turn first and 10 to third and short. And no matter who your quarterback is, the more first and 10s you turn into third and short or first and 10s you turn into another first and 10, the more you do that, the better chance your quarterback has to be consistent and and sustain drives. So I don't care that Nick Chubb's production looks the same as Jerome Ford or Kareem Hunt's. Because in reality, just on surface level alone, and I know they do a bunch of deep dives and there's, you know, uh, you know, yards that uh, result in negative or no yardage. I know that there's a lot of stats to kind of back this up. The reality is Nick Chubb is more valuable to me because Nick Chubb behind a bad offensive line can create yardage and get you first downs. When Nick Chubb has had multiple tackles that have been booty cheeks, Nick Chubb has ran for 1,500 yards. Before the Browns fixed the offensive line in 2018 and 2019, before 2020 when they actually were like, hey, should we get some tackles up in here? Uh, Nick Chubb was still dominating. And I think if you look at that fluctuating ability last year, all the really smart people go, well, that's because your tackles just weren't healthy. Or it could also be that you're the one of the best runners in the game has been making up for a good offensive line, but maybe not a great offensive line. It could also be you are missing one of the most dominant running backs in the NFL. And so I think that brings us all the way back to, if you move on from Nick Chubb, I think the Browns have earned the right to make a move to show you that there's logic there. But if all this is is the difference between $4 million guaranteed and $8 million guaranteed, Get out of your damn way. I know I know. we're supposed to be, oh, objective, hey, one player's not more important than the other. It's positional value. I, that's the stuff that you tell your nerd buddies around the uh, the the Excel sheet. Instead of a water cooler, all these analytics dudes have a, an Excel. Uh, and I'm not anti-analytics. It sounds like I am. My point is we've gotten to a point where, where I just disagree with Andrew. Andrew's, uh, and again, brilliant football guy. To a degree, I do think that the offensive line, when your offensive line is Jerome Ford, or when your running backs are Jerome Ford and Pierre Strong Jr., I think that the offensive line matters more than the running back. But when you can have a Nick Chubb, a Saquon Barkley, I'm a little leery about putting Josh Jacobs there, but I'll put Josh Jacobs there. When you can have a guy whose success isn't predicated on the offensive line, that's worth more than the franchise tag. That's worth more than, well, but he's got an injury. Well, but he's going to be 29. Well, but he's this, that, and the other. He might not be there for 16 games. Might not be there for 17 games. I get you. And I'm sure there are 17 people right now with their calculators out, with their spreadsheets, and they are uh, just fuming mad because I don't have the proper outlook on running back. It's okay. You can be wrong even if the math looks right. We did just hear some of the sidebar from Andrew Barry, and there was the, the podium Andrew Barry, and then there was the sidebar Andrew Barry, and uh, I want to get into, he had a, a, a take, or he was asked a question, rather, about uh, whether the defensive tackle spot or wide receiver spot is more important, and so we're going to get to that in just one second here, but I got to say, I think, if you ask me right now, what's more important, getting a 
Um, and just under elite, like a like a really good starter, but not necessarily an elite player at defensive tackle, or a really good player, but maybe not an elite player at wide receiver. Right now, I'd probably say defensive tackle. But here was Andrew Barry during the sidebar. Defensive tackle or wide receiver, which is the greater need? Um, all the above. All the above. <laughs> Andrew, when you good try though, I appreciate it. <laughs> and. Uh, there's a little non-answer there. I I wonder if the Browns aren't being that forthcoming when it comes to – because I thought Andrew in that same thing did a great job at talking about resource allocation and how the offensive line is always going to be um, part of that resource allo- – they're always going to use their resources in that area, right? When you start to divvy out, all right, 25%, 25%, 15%, when you start kind of stacking positional importance, whether it's draft picks, whether it's money, whether it's um, any kind of other thought process, whether it's developmental, whatever, the offensive line is going to be one of their more important areas. And I like to hear that, by the way, because I think once you have a really nice quarterback, uh, and, and hopefully Deshaun can be that and can be healthy here, I think the best thing you can have for a upper echelon quarterback is an elite offensive line and elite defensive line. Because an elite quarterback can get by with goodish weapons, right? I mean, honestly, Pat Mahomes, and he is one of one, so I'm not expecting this from Deshaun. Pat Mahomes took five wide receivers who were anywhere from Kaka to, eh, they belong in the NFL. I think Rasheed Rice will be a nice player in the future. But but look at what he did. Look, Pat elevated. Even look at the stats of Travis Kelsey before um, Pat Mahomes got there. He helped take. Kelsey to a not a completely different but to that next level of production so I thought that was interesting um you did hear him talk about worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole well good thing instacart shoppers are as picky as you are they find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line they are milk expiration date detectives they bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are so let instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date download the instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last minimum ten dollar per order additional term supply we really need new phones t-mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iphone 15s and each line is only 25 dollars a month new iphone 15s it's better over here. only at t-mobile get four iphone 15s on us and four lines for 25 bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. About Greenbrier and the, the, the basically the plan this year for the offseason, including joint practices. We will be going back to the Greenbrier, and we will be doing joint against uh, the Minnesota Vikings. They'll be coming to the place. Superior. 
You'll be coming to Berea. Yeah. So you guys are out the travel. Very cagey. I, he was a little more playful on the, the sidebar. Um, I hate Greenbrier for fans because it does limit the amount of events they can have out at Berea. And I I remember the very first offseason that the Browns came back, my uncle and I, my uncle Richard and I, who was an avid Cleveland sports fan, and me and him went to like three or four days in a row. He literally took a week off. And it was it was you know, I I had always watched the Browns on TV. I'd been to, I think, a game when I was like nine, but it's really tough when you're really, really young to have any individual connection to that because it's you're kind of learning the game. And you in my case, I learned the game through my dad and my uncles. In this case, that was like the first moment I really got to like, oh, um, I almost said Andy Katzmar. It wasn't him. I'm trying to think of the, the but I, I got like, I still have the hat. I have like, 30 Brown signature from that 99 team. And each one of them took time to, Hey kid, how you doing? And they were just, and that was like, that was, they became my team then. And so I hate it for, for Brown's fans. I think it makes a lot of sense. If the Browns truly feel like Greenbrier was a part of their success in team building to try and double that and do everything they can to try and basically win double digit games again and have good culture and start stacking winning seasons because now that's the next barrier. We keep talking about the Browns. We're like, well, you know, maybe next you win a Super Bowl. That's not really how this goes. If this thing does go linearly, which it could, it could also not go, you know, winning, having back-to-back winning playoff seasons for the first time since 1988 and 1989 would be significant for this franchise. And if that means Greenbrier helps that, well, now I can't, I can't, uh, get mad about it when they're in West Virginia, and I wish they were down the road because it worked this year at the very least. And one more here. Uh, this is uh, Andrew Barry talking about the importance of a veteran backup quarterback. Quarterback will always be a high priority for us, like from one to three. What that room looks like as we get into the summer, that I'm not sure yet. It'll, it'll, it'll largely just depend on who's available and at what cost. We'll get to the specifics here at some point. Um I don't like what the Browns did two years ago at backup, even though it actually paid dividends on the field for most of that season. Because theoretically, they built the team and they built the quarterback room on a flaw. And I don't like that. I I, th- I think it, it made the transition to Deshaun even more difficult. We'll get that to that more later in the show. But where we are with the Browns are, I will have no problem if from now until – Whenever you hand the reins over to the next quarterback, I will have no problem if every single year, if you don't bring in a veteran quarterback, if every single year you bring in and and use a, a draft pick on the quarterback position. I think one of the brightest and most brilliant quarterback gurus, quarterback, whatever it was, was Ron Wolf. And Ron Wolf in in Green Bay saying we're gonna we're gonna find a quarterback every year, undrafted free agent. Uh, seventh round pick, sixth round pick, fifth round pick, fourth round pick, whatever it is, waiver what we're gonna find a young developmental quarterback. And we're because what that led to was like they were so replete with quarterbacks in ninety four, they cut Kurt Warner. They traded uh, they lost Mark Brunell. Uh, sorry, they traded Mark Brunell uh to the uh Jags in I think ninety five for a couple of picks. They traded Matt Hasselbeck for a first round pick. 
They look at Ty Detmer. Look at all the guys that they had that they got extra picks out of in the future and they had good backup quarterbacks. So if you're not going to bring in a veteran every single year from now on, if if you can get to a point even when Deshaun is healthy, given his frame, given his injury history, I have no problem if every year, whether it's a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round pick, Green Bay, or New England did this a bit too with Garoppolo and a few other guys. I'd have no problem if you bring in a different quarterback every year. So uh, we'll we'll have more to say about Andrew Barry. We do again. We got Daniel Jeremiah coming up at four. I want to get into uh, DJ's thoughts on the Browns' wide receiver position, what he thinks the big need is going to the combine, probably the Nick Chubb situation as well. But while we get ready for the combine. Big return in Cleveland tonight, which is Kyrie Irving coming back again as a member of the Dallas Mavericks uh, to uh, to the place that that his career started in uh, in Cleveland. So it's a 7 p.m. tip off, and I you know it's weird. I have such a I don't say weird. I never know exactly how I'm going to feel when Kyrie returns. Of all the guys who I have infinite admiration for, Kyrie is somebody that I get pretty annoyed with. And mostly because I think, I think Kyrie is is uh, I just I don't relate to him, for all the good things you know, and it's not it's not an age thing, it's not an NBA thing, it's just he's just wants so hard to be something he's not, a provocateur, and he wants so so very deeply to be something that I don't th- I think he's wearing the wrong hat. Because all I've heard, the good things I've heard of Kyrie are money does not matter that much to him. He will go out of his way to help people around him. And when he finds, you know, he hears uh, somebody in need, he's willing to help them. That's what I like to hear about Kyrie Irving. When when Kyrie kind of slings his cockamamie theories, oh my God, it does nothing for me. It really doesn't. But I think Kyrie's always been caught in some ways in that shadow of LeBron. And I think a lot of that, you know, flat earth crap, a lot of that, just the uh, how woke are you, all that, you know, oh, I'm so awoke, I'm I'm so woke, I'm asleep, that kind of crap. Like, and that's not what he said, by the way, but it was equally dumb to what I just said. Um, A lot of that, I think, is always like little brother syndrome. And I just, I can't fathom being Kyrie and having that chip on my shoulder. I just can't. And maybe it's because I, you know, we all kind of, maybe it's the money thing. We look at guys and say, man, look at the money you've made. Like, how can you still have that chip on your shoulder? Or how can you care what you're perceived as? But I feel very similar to the Kevin Durant thing. Like, dude, you're one of one. Who who gives a damn whether people think you're a brilliant scholar or whether people want to hear your takes on China or not? Who cares? We understand the weight that it involves to be like LeBron James. LeBron has chosen to do those things, and it's not always benefited him. But Kyrie, I think, has tried to mimic that in the weirdest way possible. And there's also times where when Kyrie comes back, I'm like, ah, man, you know what? That was a good run. And I have a specific soft spot for Kyrie because Kyrie, in those really lost years with with Byron Scott, and I, I know them especially well because there were times where I went to cover the Cavs and it was me and the backup reporter from the AP, and we were the only members of the media there uh, like three days before Byron Scott got fired. And so uh, to then, a year, two years later, 
fast forward to all of the NBA media is at a random practice in uh, December with LeBron, it was a little like I there's a part of me that does, man, that was pretty cool before the Cavs got big again. And man, can you imagine if they'd been able to build it by themselves? But I am curious, 216-474-0092. It does beg the question about Kyrie and how you see him and how you see him in Cleveland. Is Kyrie still the second most beloved player on that championship team or from that championship team? Because what, what I've really kind of enjoyed watching is the moving goalpost that is how we have felt about every player on that team. Like, there are people at that parade that after LeBron left the second time, was like, eh, it wasn't worth it. I would like to have those people drug tested. But the point is, there were people who, because LeBron didn't end his career in Cleveland, there are people who were like, eh, yeah, what, what was LeBron really worth it? I would say yes. I would say the winning the first uh, title in Cleveland history for 50 years, I would say is worth it. But I digress. But there are people who, uh, you know, after... Kyrie got traded or forced his way out of Cleveland. That's a better way to put that. And Kevin Love resigned. Kevin became the second favorite player. And then the last year and a half happened with all that weirdness where Kevin forced his way out of Cleveland. And then there was Tristan Thompson. And then there was the Kardashians. And then there was J.R. Smith. And then there was J.R. Smith after LeBron left. Like, it's been so wild to look at that. There's Delhi, And then Delhi came back. And then Delhi was couldn't really play anymore because his knees were shot. And then we still kind of liked him, but it was like, yeah, you probably were a little overrated. So 216-474-0092. With Kyrie returning to Cleveland tonight, it'll be Kyrie, Luka versus uh, Darius Garland, Donovan Mitchell, and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, by the way, the Mavericks are actually they, – they just had their seven-game win streak snap, so – there's going to be a, a testy one tonight with the Cavaliers kind of playing wonkily. Who's the second most beloved player on that championship team? It still might be Kyrie. There is, there's a part of me that there is, there's some point when it's like the sixth return, the, the homecoming. Um, if a team is still playing like a tribute video, we get to make fun of you. And I, I do not expect a tribute video for Kyrie tonight. I feel like that would be a little forced. Uh, he forced his way out. You won a title with him. That was super cool. He's a bit of a goober, but like you, we're we're past. I think the next tribute for Kyrie should be when he retires, and when you have you rebuild that relationship, and all of a sudden you can put the the number up in the rafters. Am I right on that? By the way, yeah. And I think that I think a lot of people's answers to this question we we asked, and I put the poll out there: who's the second most beloved Cavs player from the 2016 championship team? Can I just say we got to do a poll? Well, no. I, so what's funny about this is I just I didn't tell you, and I just put up the question. That's why we got two different polls. We, we can compare them. Well, no, it's, it wasn't a poll. It was just an open forum, and uh, this is we we might need vacations from each other because we're thinking a little too similarly right now. Well, and I made the the options. You can only make four options, so I made it Kyrie Irving, Kevin Love, Tristan Thompson, and other because I think other would include guys like J.R. Smith, uh -huh. Matthew Delavadova, believe it or not, because he was a fan favorite. I think there would be a small minority of people that would probably say his bringing his name up. But I think a lot of people's answers today will be different than people's answers 10 years from now. Because I think it's easy to go out there and just ignore the Kyrie thing and say, well, you know, that didn't end well and everything. But all it takes is one special night after he's done playing. He comes back here if they retire his jersey or have a special tribute to the championship team or whatever. 
He makes one comment and the city falls in love with him again. That's all it takes. So I'm not saying that's going to happen. But right now, people, there's probably a good amount of people that would not say Kyrie that might say Kyrie 10 years from now when he's done playing. So I'll actually, so I agree with you. I think some of this depends on Kyrie off the court. I think if 10 years from now, Kyrie's kind of separated himself from whatever agitator, you know, thought provo- you know, provocateur role that he took. And I think he actually has a little bit in Dallas. He seems to be cognizant of how much money that's cost him. And so I think he's chilled out on that. I think, I don't know. I, I don't listen to Dallas sports talk every day. But I think if I think if Kyrie stays clear, I think you're right. Ten years from now, people are going to remember what he really did. I also think, and, and listen, I don't put a lot of stock into this or thought into this. If seven years from now, if Kyrie towards the end of his career, if he became like a backup point guard, I'm thinking like Jim Tomey at the end of his career. Jim Tomey, everybody was mad at him. I'm never going to forgive Jim Tomey. Jim Tomey came back at the end of his career, had like a 30-game run, hit that one big home run, and a good deal of Clevelanders, not everyone, but a good deal of Clevelanders were like, that's my guy. I'm sorry. I love you. I never meant what I said. I think Kyrie's the same way. Like, I don't know if Kyrie ever came back as a full-time starter. I think I just think he's a guy that burns hot and he burns out, like, fan bases. But I think if one day, eight years from now, at the end of his career, Kyrie came back and and was part of a really good team like Matthew Delavadova as a backup quarterback, if he ever had that inclination, or maybe he was like the face of like the first year of a rebuilding team at the end of his career, I I also think that, though I think those are the kind of roadmaps to get people to remember not just how crucial, but how really truly beloved Kyrie was in town. Yeah, not only that, but I think over the last few years, you know, there's been rumors about Kyrie and LeBron maybe teaming back up and LeBron trying to recruit him to L.A. or whatever. And there's a lot of people that didn't want that to happen, but they wouldn't admit the reason that they really didn't want it to happen. And I think the reason a lot of people didn't want it to happen is because we had that special thing. We don't want somebody else to have that special yeah. thing. Like, it was enough to have LeBron to go to L.A., and now they get to experience him and win a championship with him. You don't want the other guy that helped you win it with the shot to be able to experience that and then have a championship run as well. So, like, I think a lot of people would say that they just didn't like Kyrie, but in the end, they just didn't want that specialness to be spread to another another market. All right, so it's never going to happen because the the how complicated this would be. If you could, with Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, if tomorrow, uh, not tomorrow, but if if for whatever reason you could facilitate one more run with LeBron and Kyrie, you don't need to now. So this is a moot point. I'm going to tell you right now, if the Cavs had not traded for Donovan and they were still the 7th or 8th seed or ninth seed, if they were just a play-in team as currently constructed, you can't tell me that most fans wouldn't sign up for that tomorrow. Because I will contend, like for people like me, Kyrie just annoys me. Oh, sorry. When Kyrie is on his BS trying to prove some point that nobody understands, when he's forcing the provocateur stuff instead of just showing that he's a good guy with a big heart. Like, I'm cool with you being aloof, man. I'm cool with you being a, a little uh, a little different than what we need from other superstars. But, like, when he's not doing the fake BS, I would take LeBron and Kyrie back in Cleveland in a second. Yeah, you know what's funny about this? I'm looking at the poll results, and we've got a significant amount of votes right now, so it's you can read into it a little bit. Kyrie leads the way with 41% of the vote of the second most beloved, and Kevin Love is just right behind him at 40%. What's interesting about that to me is like 
Kevin Love after the championship run became beloved because yeah. like during the championship run, he was the guy that everybody's like, this is the reason why you're not winning. Well, even like, in 2017, the, you yeah, remember, remember the, the Paul point. George rumors when we all looked around and be like, well, if you could turn Kevin Love into Paul and a first round pick into Paul George, take that, take that and run with it. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Kevin was truly the second most beloved guy on that team. You know, when it's when he resigned the contract, right? That's what I'm yep. saying. After the championship run is when Cavs fell in love with him because he stayed around and and tried to be part of that rebuild. So I I by the way I totally just ADD'd out on air. I, I was making a point about um, in two one six four seven four double oh nine two with Kyrie coming back to Cleveland tonight. What kind of reaction do you expect? And who is the second most beloved player on that championship team? Because I will contend that although Kyrie has annoyed me at points and Kyrie's false provocateur thing has has been, I, I just use the word annoying. I would say harmless, but uh, he said some things that I don't think are harmless. But, like, that's not why I think Cleveland has had a sore spot for Kyrie. I think if, if people mother bleep Kyrie, I think it is much more likely because we blame him for the end of the Cavs title runs. And I think if you look at how the NBA played the next two years, I don't think you're beating Golden State uh, the, the time where they won the second title. But the Raptors title, if Kyrie stays, and if Kevin Love, Kyrie Irving, and LeBron stay, I think that 2019 title is yours. I don't think that Raptors team with Kawhi is getting past the Cleveland Cavaliers. But even so, I would say I think your anger, anger should be also pointed at Dan Gilbert. I, I as as immature or whatever I don't even want to say immature as is strong-headed, stubborn, sensitive, whatever you want to call Kyrie. As much of that as he was, different, aloof, whatever, hot and cold, however you want to frame it. They shouldn't have traded him. Like I, I still to this day, like I'm, I'm annoyed because Kyrie annoys me, and and because I just, I just want him to stop worrying about his perception. I think it is useless. I think, I think him, KD, I, I, I I've teasingly called them like the betas, like they're guys who are telling everybody how alpha they are. They're not. You care too much about what people think for you to be true alphas, but like. I just look at both guys. I'm like, you're freaking unicorns. You guys are going to make $300 million at the very worst in your career. What are you doing? But I think, I don't think I ever forgave Dan Gilbert for trading Kyrie. So when Kyrie comes back, if tonight I had tickets for my girls and my my wife and I to go to this game, I'd, I'd cheer Kyrie. I think we're to the point where I I think I've, I've although I know he, he made the request. He went to Boston. Guys, he jobbed Boston. Like we, He didn't job us the way he jobbed Boston, leaving for nothing, where they were starting to take off with uh, Brown and Tatum. I think this is the first year that they've had as good of a roster as they had when Kyrie, Jalen, and Jason Tatum were all like young and, and having a chance to, to rule the East. Kyrie leaving cost them a chance at a dynastic run, even though – Health issues were catching up with him at that point. So, like, I'm not really even mad about Kyrie for leaving anymore. I have a little unresolved trauma with uh, with Dan Gilbert because neither Ty Lue nor LeBron wanted him to trade the guy. And I think the next two years might look a little different. 
I think maybe then you could turn around and trade Kevin Love for a better third piece, but I digress. But I thought it was wild. Like, I don't think it – like right now, the, the, the poll that Keith put up at afternoon 923 fan, because this is the show of polls, and we do like to show our work and show our polls here, 257 votes. 42.8% saying Kyrie. And listen, this is your interpretation. I'm not attacking you if you say it's Kevin Love over Kyrie. But, like, I, I've seen a lot of people in my mentions say J.R. Smith. I love J.R. Smith. All right? If there's ever an instance, you know, uh, the mayor of Cleveland wanted to smoke up, with, or sorry, drop a gummy with one of the dudes from Cleveland scene because uh, he's the cool, hip mayor. You should vote for him for president. He's Justin Bibb. Um, if, if I ever did a podcast stoned to bejesus, it because J.R. Smith said we could do it. The only way I've never been on air drunk. I've never been on air in any way, uh, altered thinking, anything. J.R. Smith said, Hey, I want to do a podcast with you for 60 minutes, but we got to smoke up first. I am doing it. All right. I don't say about it. I want to smoke up with LeBron and then talk about Talk hoops, okay? I don't smoke it up with Kyrie and talk about his thoughts on the uh, the curvature of the globe or lack thereof. Kevin Love, eh, miss me, man. Miss me with some of that. JR is the guy I want to chill with the most. He's not, uh, to me, he can't be the second most beloved because he was a role player on a great team. I thought he was the coolest dude in the world, loved his energy, loved his heart. But man, I just can't, I can't, look at Kyrie and go that dude hit the biggest shot in the history of the Cleveland Cavaliers and go eh J.R. Smith's more important J.R. Smith's more beloved let's go with Don welcome to the show buddy what you got for us good afternoon how you doing today doing very well what you got we get it attention spans just aren't what they used to be heads in social media and eyes on Netflix but what do people do with their ears well for one they're listening to audio Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. So, I soured on Kyrie because he became weird. <laughs> maybe he was always we I mean, maybe he was always weird and we didn't know it, but he became real weird. But the guy's always been an awesome basketball player, right? And a lot of a lot of guys in sports do crazy things, weird things, and not like them. Um, I didn't like Kyrie when he left, but you can't hate the guy. You don't have to like him. And he made the biggest shot in Cavs history. Like he, like his shot was part of two plays that won us the only title we've had in this town. And Kyrie was awesome when he did it. And he's still a hell of a basketball player. So I, I can never hate Kyrie. I don't, I don't always see eye to eye with what, what he does. Um, but, man, that guy was – he was so good when he was here. Um, I will say this about Jr. since you brought him up. Um, he was definitely more of a role player than, you know, the second most important guy. But I think you'll agree with me in game seven – we probably don't win game seven if he doesn't hit those eight or nine points in a row, right? He's, pr he's pretty big in that. Um, hey, real quick, yeah. Don, are you going to the game tonight? I am not. I actually right. have not been to a Cavs game all year. Okay, if you were going tonight, would you cheer Kyrie, boo yeah. Kyrie, or have yeah. no reaction? 
I would. You have to cheer. He he made the biggest shot. I mean, I would clap, cheer, be done with it. Don, we appreciate you, buddy. Two one six four seven four double zero nine two. I I actually think all three guys, the three main guys on the team, like if if Richard Jefferson was still playing, RJ would get cheers tonight. There's no there's no compunction about how that ended. If J.R. Smith was just randomly, everybody would cheer. Delhi shown on the jumbotron, gonna get cheers. I don't know how much, how many cheers versus jeers LeBron would get on any given night coming back to Cleveland. Same thing for Kevin Love right now, and same thing for Kyrie. That that's not a like a negative. Like I really don't know. It's just weird that the guys we have the most complicated relationship with from the best team in Cleveland. Cavaliers history and maybe the best team in Cleveland sports history or at least in the last 50 years the three best players most impactful players on that team are the teams that we kind of have still weird relationships with maybe it's because they're still playing the combine is in okay it's not in full swing it's starting to be in full swing as we get you ready for the the combine the Browns having a, a pick in the 50s there. There's no better guest to bring on and talk about the Browns, the Combine, and guys that could be the next man up in Berea. And to do so, we're going to head to the North Olmstead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. We welcome on Daniel Jeremiah of the NFL Network, lead draft analyst. And uh, you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram, at Move the Sticks. NFL Network providing live coverage of the 2024 NFL Scouting Combine Thursday through Sunday. Covered start. Starts at 3 p.m. Eastern on Thursday and Friday, 1 p.m. on Saturday and Sunday. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be with you. So we have not played the audio yet, but I got to tell you your story about Ozzie Newsome on the, the Kevin Clark podcast about uh, finding out who the real leader is in that Michigan draft was one of the funniest <laughs> and also coolest stories you've shared. So just continue killing that. Well, I, oh, look, I... Uh... I was uh, only around Ozzy for four years, but definitely packed a lot of learning into that time because uh, you don't have the success he's had in literally everything he's ever done uh, without having wisdom. So hopefully able to take some of those stories and learn some, something from him over those years. Well, it's been funny. We've had this kind of ongoing conversation about the Browns and how in the last four years the some of the narratives have changed and they've kind of changed the image, being able to go to the playoffs twice, get a playoff win, you know, the, the the floor has been like seven wins, which previously had been the, the ceiling for other teams. I'm just curious, how much have the last four years changed the way you think about the Browns organization and kind of the trajectory of that organization? Well, there just seems to be stability, you know. Like, that's something that's been lacking and missing there for a couple decades. So, uh, it's just, it's so much easier in this league when you have a, a stable foundation and you can start stacking and building, you know, when you're constantly, you know, building and then tearing down and then rebuilding and then tearing down. It's just, you can't get any momentum. And it feels like they're, they're kind of on solid footing right now. Um, I love, you know, what they did bringing Jim Schwartz in. And I, I think that kind of stabilized that side of the ball. Stefanski is just a steady hand at the helm. Um, so, you know, I think they've, they've done a nice job. Andrew Barry's done a nice job as well. I'm I'm asking this in a place of, of like good mental sound clarity asking this because I think Andrew Barry is coming off one of his better drafts that he had. Find a guy like Dewan Jones in the fourth round who immediately steps in as and is a player. But it's been funny to watch the four Andrew Barry drafts. You know, they have been 
They have been really great at drafting corners. They've struggled a bit at finding difference makers on the defensive line and wide receiver. How do you, as an organization, when you're, when you're, you know, okay, we're really good over here, but man, we've had some misses in this category. How do you, what changes do you make to kind of maybe get better at some of your blind spots in the drafting or, or maybe not blind spots, but a place where you've struggled to identify the right players and difference makers in the draft? Yeah, I think sometimes um, there's there's little things you can do, exercises you can do um, that that can help you with this because every every team does, every team has their areas uh, where they struggle to evaluate. And I think one of the things you can do, as I know they did this in Baltimore, was uh, you kind of go through the word banks on players and you can sort you can sort like say the the receivers that you were too high on. Um, and then you, you can run these programs and it'll pull out all the common words that you had in, in all the scouts reports, uh, on those players. And you'll start realizing, okay, well, you know what? We gave this guy a pass for being a little bit stiff. And it seems like every time we try and take a stiff, fast guy, it screws us, you know, and it doesn't hit or, you know, there's there, you know, we gave, we didn't give enough credence to this player having polish and this polished player, even though he didn't maybe test as well, but this polished players transitioned really well to the NFL. So you kind of, you're constantly self-evaluating and guys you got right and guys you got wrong. Um, and then the other thing you can do is you'll, you'll look at teams that have scouted that those positions well and, and look through uh, their history and what those guys have in common for the guys they've picked, where they came from, how they were coached, um, you know, their, 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 uh, you know, mental stamina, everything you can, you can look at all that stuff. Um, and, and try and figure out how you can course correct because just because you've struggled in the past doesn't mean you can't figure it out and uh, and get it right moving forward. Daniel Jeremiah of the NFL Network on the North Olmstead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. So moving to the Browns moving forward, what do you see as their biggest need in the area of concern heading into this combine? Well, I mean, to me, you look at, you know, defensively, they're in such a good spot, but I still would love to have another edge rusher. Um, that would be in the mix for me. Um, you know, I still, I think you talked about the wide receiver position, continuing to look and address that. Now, this is a, you know, a third down offense that needs to get better. So, you know, find just another playmaker you can throw in the mix. The running back positions, uh, you know, um, obviously just kind of a little bit in flux right now, but there's, there's able-bodied guys there, but those would be, uh, you know, I think edge rusher and receiver would be two that I would be peeking at defensive tackle, um, would be up there probably as uh, as a discussion as well. So it's funny. You mentioned wide receivers. We've had, uh, kind of this ongoing debate in town about Amari Cooper and, you know, there's a likelihood that they could extend him this off season. Um, but, Really, the debate centers around whether he is your number one wide receiver or whether he's a true number one wide receiver, meaning do the Browns need to get a true number one wide receiver and kind of move Amari? I know it's a reductive way of thinking of it to your number two receiver. So I'm just curious, do yeah. you see Amari as a true number one wide receiver? It's funny you say that because I've always I've made this comment about there's some guys in the league that are 1.5s. Like he's not quite a true one, but he's better than your twos. Um, so he's like a one and a half. Like I would, I would much rather have him paired up with a, with a true one. And then he would play up a great example of that. Like T Higgins, I thought for a long time was like a 1.5. Um, you know, he's developed into being a good 1.5 receiver. He, you know, you put a 1.5 next to a one in Jamar chase. Holy cow. Like that's uh that looks different now. 
um, that changes your offense, changes the dynamic. So um, that to me is, uh, you know, that's how I would describe Amari. I think he's, you know, he's a really solid player, really good player, and we've seen him have monster games. But I don't know that that's the consistent fear that gets uh, put in the hearts of the teams you're playing uh, each and every week like a true number one would. So I think that leads me to the question, you know, what does a true number one look like? Is it an asset? Is it like, is there a specific skill? What does that look like? I define it this way. I just think when when it's third down and when you're in the red zone and when everybody in the stadium knows where the football's going and they can't stop you, that means you have a number one receiver. That's how I've defined it. Everybody has their different definition. But I think, you know, third down, you're third down in the middle of the field, you're down the red zone, everybody on defense, everybody on offense, everybody in the stadium knows where you're going to go with it, and you can't do a darn thing about it. That, to me, is uh, that's a a one. Daniel Jeremiah, the NFL Network, on the North Olmstead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. You did mention uh, edge rusher. You mentioned that defensive line. And it's been interesting to look at the road splits from last year. And this team was definitively locked down, airtight, unbeatable almost at home last year. And then they went on the road, as we saw in the Houston game, and man, they could really get skunked. And I'm just, uh, we're, we're, we're looking for any working theory here on what goes into maybe a defense that is beyond elite at home and then goes out on the road and is susceptible to getting 30, 35 points, 400, 500 yards put up on it. Well, I mean, I, I don't have an answer for you on that one. That's a tricky one. I, I would say, you know, sometimes just from a pass rush standpoint, it's easier to rush at home than it is on the road, um, just with noise and things. But, um, you know, I think that front can take a lot of pressure off the back end. And when they aren't able to get home, then I think you get exposed a little bit. So, um, you know, I, again, there's no, there's no, there's no true reason for it. Um, but, you know, I do think that that is a defense with Jim Schwartz that is, uh, that jet front, that attacking front that they run, um, that defense needs that front to get home. Daniel, looking to the Nick Chubb situation here, uh, so much of this conversation about the Browns, and I do want to get into more guys in the combine, by the way. I'm not just going to hammer you about all the stuff we talk about every day, but the you know this conversation about building the offense, building more of a spread-based offense around Deshaun. And we know that We know that Deshaun, in more of the Kevin Stefanski offense, has struggled under center and has not looked elite. And now the question becomes, can Nick Chubb excel in more of a spread-out offense like Deshaun uh, succeeded in to the ridiculous degree in Houston? Is that – you think Nick Chubb can still be Nick Chubb in a different offense? Uh, I think he could, provided he's healthy, you know, uh, and how he comes back from this thing. But, uh, you know, look, he's he's probably – ideally suited uh under center downhill run game but uh you know i look i i i wouldn't limit him to that at georgia you saw him do a lot of that stuff um so to me i think he'd i think he'd be fine there it may not be his perfect or perfect fit or his choice or his preference but i think provided he's healthy i i would personally I'd worry a lot more about making my quarterback comfortable than my running back uh, when it's all said and done. And they've got to get him. Uh, they've got to get him out there and get Deshaun rolling. So uh, I would like to see him do that. DJ, one of the stories uh, that incurred a lot of rabble rousing was Marvin Harrison Jr. Uh, skipping the combine, skipping the pre-combine kind of workouts to get you good at those tests that they they kind of put out there at the combine. Is this a big deal, little deal, or no deal at all? Well, I think it's a card that he's playing. I think people are 
uh, you know, have opinions on it. I, I just, everybody's like, oh, this is going to be copycat going in the future. Everybody's going to do this. Like, nah, he's, he's one of the few guys who has the card to play, um, you know, in terms of the, the production, the pedigree, you know, the, how long he's been on the scene. The guy went through the pro day at Ohio State last year running routes with CJ. So we've already really seen him kind of have a pro day. Um, you know, I just I, – there's going to be guys – there's going to be a select few guys that are going to make this decision every year going forward at different positions that have kind of somewhat earned the right, I guess you could say, um, based off their accomplishments and, and the time the time that we've uh, we've had to see them. And, uh, and look, all, more power to him. You don't want to do that. He has, he's well within his right. It's not going to impact him at all. Um, but I don't think – you know, some people are overreacting, thinking this is going to become the norm. I, I don't really see that. DJ, uh, the other big story, obviously teams atop the draft needing a quarterback. The big name this year, Caleb Williams, Drake May, J.J. McCarthy, Jaden Daniels. And I, for the first time in a really long time, I'm not really in love with the quarterback class. I'm a little concerned about each one of these guys. Do you think this is a good year to need a quarterback and have a top three pick with a chance to draft one of the, the best quarterbacks in this draft? You know, I do. I think there's there's no such thing as a perfect prospect. I mean, there's going to be holes in these guys each and every year. I have find it. I, I do find it funny though, because now that that Cleveland has, you know, even though Deshaun hadn't played as well as you'd hope, they have their starter. This is a truism that I've learned in scouting over the years and talking to teams. It's amazing how how um, the teams that have the quarterbacks are way more picky and are, are more um, critical than the teams that don't have quarterbacks who, who turn, tend to be a lot more forgiving and offer a lot of grace and forgive a lot of sins. When you don't have one of these guys, you see, you'll see you see the best in them. When you do have one, you can be a little more open and honest and say, hey, this is a little legit, legitimate concern with these guys, right? I'm, I'm not crazy. But uh, it does color, it colors your thinking for sure. Daniel, is Caleb Williams QB1 because we decided it two years ago? Or is, is it when all is said and done, is he still going to be the deserving QB1, the first guy off the board? I think he will be. I'll be surprised if he's not. I mean, look, it, stuff happens every year in the draft you don't see coming. I'm mean, talking right there in Cleveland. I didn't think in a million years that Baker Mayfield would have been the first pick in that draft. So um, always prepared to be surprised, but I, I would say he's the heavy favorite. And I do think in my opinion, I think he did earn it. I, you know, I know, um, you know, Jaden Daniels played better on tape this year than Caleb Williams did, but they were totally different situations. And I, and I always tell people uh, through this process, you know, hey, uh, Jaden Daniels with a good offensive line and two first-round receivers, he put up a monster year. And Caleb Williams didn't have that. But if you close your eyes and use your imagination and imagine him with just a solid offensive line, a, a non-sucky offensive line, and let's give him one first-round receiver instead of two, what could that look like? Well, all you have to do is go back and watch last year. That's what he had, and he was the Heisman Trophy winner, and he was the one that had all the stats and the numbers and had USC with no defense one win away from being in the college football playoff. So um, now I, I, I'm, I'm a believer in his ability. I thought he pressed a little bit in the second half of this season. Um, when you're playing with 121st-ranked scoring defense in the country, that tends to happen. So from the potential Bears quarterback of the future to the potential Bears quarterback of the past, I got one more for you. Do you think Justin Fields can still be a, and become a franchise quarterback? I think he's got to do it in his way. You know, I think, uh, you know, running is going to have to be a big part of that. Um, I don't think, you know, I think the hope was, 
okay, maybe he can kind of grow into, uh, you know, being a, you know, a Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes type who just keeps getting better and better and then can really just slice you up from the pocket. I don't, I don't know that he's going to be that guy. Um, but I think if you're using his legs a lot, I think of the formula for the, for the early Seahawks teams with Russell Wilson, how they won the Super Bowl and got to another Super Bowl. I think Justin can do that. You know, I think if you ask him to do that with a really good defense and a run game, um, he can kind of manage things and get you to that point. But I don't really see him, you know, vaulting into that next tier to be like an A-tier quarterback. I had a half more question. Is there a perfect scenario on the board for him this offseason if it isn't Chicago? Oh, it's New England for me. I think he fits. Defensive head coach, good defense. You want to run the ball. Um, you could trade the 34th pick for New England. Uh, you know, if you're Chicago, you pick up the 34th pick. And then, uh, and then New England could trade the third pick, having their quarterback in place uh, for one of those teams coming up for quarterback and use all those resources and new assets to help out Justin. I think that, that to me on the surface, just looking at it, makes the most sense. Daniel, phenomenal stuff, man. Always love hearing your perspective on stuff. Love hearing your stories from your time uh, in the NFL. You you kill it as always. Can't wait to watch you kill it during the the draft process here. Uh, Big fan over here. Appreciate your time, bud. Always enjoy our visits. Uh, Hopefully you have a a wonderful week. Good luck to to the Guardians. And uh... Uh, we'll see if the Padres can find some starting pitching. You know, we all got things we got to work on. I think I think the Padres and Cards could use some good luck this year, but I already have a bet on it on this show. So now, now my now my wallet is on the line on this one. So the Guardians <laughs> better be good this year. Be good, bud. There you go. I love it. See you, buddy. Daniel Jeremiah on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. You got to check out the story on Ozzie Newsom figuring out the leader uh, of a loaded draft class uh, when he was the the Ravens GM, when DJ worked there. I, I retweeted it. At Nick Wilson says, very, very funny story on Ozzie Newsom. He gave a great process-oriented answer when I asked him about, like, hey, the Browns are really good at drafting corners. Defensive line and wide receiver, they've put a lot of assets out there. They haven't necessarily got the return on that. What can you do to make that better? It's one of my favorite answers it's kind of a deep cut, right? So it's not ramble on. It's not stairway to heaven. Uh, it's like uh, it's like no quarter for Zeppelin. It's a bit of a deep cut, but it is a hell of a song. So if you guys want to listen back to that. Um, I thought I actually thought he did a really good job. Listen, I think the conversation of is Amari Cooper a number one wide receiver can get a little tedious. It can because if you say he's not, it turns into a pejorative. If you say he is, there's a way to define it that makes you look like a homer. And the reality is, Amari Cooper is a tremendous football player. And if Amari Cooper is your best wide receiver, um, you're going to be okay. He's a really good player. Like, look at, I mean, I think you kind of look at the production of wide receivers in Dallas when Amari was there. And look at the impact he had and what he opened up for guys like Michael Gallup and CeeDee Lamb. But like, there is a part of me that I understand it is not a pejorative. When Daniel uh, when Daniel Jeremiah says, hey, he's like a 1.5. He's not a 1. He's not a 2. He's like somewhere in between. Because it's actually not. Like, I think we put production on. Or I think we put production as what makes a number 1. And I think there's a fair way to look at. I mean, Amare last year in 15 games. So he, he, he did not play in two of the games. But in 15 games, he had 1,250 yards. That's pretty outstanding. That is um, that is about 83 yards per game. 
And obviously some of that, the 250-yard game or the 200-whatever game was fantastic. The touchdowns, like I think he had like five touchdowns. Those are the kind of things that kind of hold people back or hold the perception back. I think in the reality, Amari has just played on – he hasn't been on enough really great teams. Those Dallas teams, he hasn't had his playoff moment yet. So there's a part of me that thinks if you call Amari Cooper a 1.5 instead of a true number one wide receiver, in some ways you're discrediting him. It's not a pejorative, but you're maybe not looking at the true value of Amari Cooper. But I think his definition there I thought was really interesting. And I do think number one receiver versus not a number one receiver can be used to slam guys. Um, he made the, the comparison to T. Higgins. So I, I, I actually think the brilliance of this, and I do think if, if T. Higgins is tagged and traded, I think you're going to see T. Higgins overpaid. I think if T. Higgins tomorrow hit the open market, he'd be paid like a number one receiver, and you would get three years down the road and say, well, is he really a number one receiver? I think he can be, but I don't know for certain. I think Amari's problem is Amari's been paid like a number one receiver in Dallas and in 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 uh, with the Raiders, and I think then there gets to be a point where you're like, well, he's really, really good, but maybe he's not worth what we're paying him. I think that's something you have to avoid if you're the Cleveland Browns because in a year's time, you don't want to be trading a really quality, high-level, consistently productive 1.5 receiver because you're paying him like a true number one receiver. But I think as the Browns go forward, I think there's a difference between is Amari a true number one? And and it's it's like that old senator who was asked to define uh, pornography, and he said, I'll know it when I see it. <laughs> like, I think that's what a true number one wide receiver is. Like uh, Jamar Chase. You watch Jamar Chase. That is, a, that is one of one. You watch Justin Jefferson. That is one of one. If you gave me a little bit more time, I could think of uh, three or four other guys that I think fit that bill. And what a true number one wide receiver is, is a guy like what Miles Garrett is to edge rushers. Miles Garrett is a guy, and Sean McVay said it after the Rams game where he rolled down the window as he was rolling out and he was passing Miles, and he said, hey, thanks for keeping me up all this week as I was having nightmares trying to contain you. I don't know that is Amari, but I think there's a difference between saying, is he a true number one wide receiver, which honestly can be a tedious conversation, versus is he the Browns' number one wide receiver? Because I think you can win with Amari as your best wide receiver, as your number one wide receiver. Before we get to X, Y, Z, slot, any of that stuff, I think you can because he's an incredibly productive wide receiver. And I actually think we've got to the point where his moments with Deshaun and Joe Flacco this year proved he can still make plays down the field and he can still be a guy that even though he's not a true deep threat, meaning you're not just going to put him on go routes and, and run him like that for most of the game, like Tyreek Hill, I think Amari's so versatile. He's such a brilliant route runner. He's such a brilliant receiver. The guy still gets open downfield. So a lot of the things that a number one wide receiver can do, he can do. But look at the quarterbacks he's played with. Played with Derek Carr, not an elite quarterback. Really good at points. Had like a half season before he got injured, I think in 2016 or 2017 where Derek Carr looked like an MVP candidate, like the next, oh, this guy's going to be, and people made the Tom Brady comparison because he wasn't a first-round pick and really good at processing. 
But like, okay, Derek Carr's a really nice quarterback. Dak Prescott, really nice quarterback. Deshaun Watson has been elite, has not been elite yet in Cleveland. Joe Flacco, really nice quarterback, not elite. Now I just realized I walked myself into the is Joe Flacco elite, not elite. But look at other, con- like, oh, yeah, he played with Jacoby Reset. Yeah, not elite quarterback, not a starting quarterback. So I agree with Daniel that Amari's probably not a true, like, if we go into how defenses prepare against you, I think you worry about Amari. I don't think he keeps you up at night the way that Miles might do if you're trying to game plan against Miles. Or the way that Nick Chubb, when Nick Chubb's 100%, and top top shelf Nick, Nick Chubb, I think he keeps you awake trying to slow down Nick Chubb the way that maybe slowing down Amari Cooper. Like, I, okay, so he's not the elite of the elite. But I also think Amari has had now almost 10,000 yards with a bunch of good, not great quarterbacks. So even though he's going to be 30 this year, even though you got to make the decision on do we extend him, do we restructure him, do we move on from him? And I don't think that's happening. That last one I I just mentioned because those are the three things we talk about when we talk about trying to move money around for a a wide receiver. Even though that's a valid conversation, I, I and and all these things are fair. I also think like he's made he's made average quarterbacks or good quarterbacks or not elite quarterbacks better. And he's not yet played with a consistently that is with a quarterback that makes him better. And so I think Amari Cooper can absolutely be your number one. Does that mean the Browns have to do a better job of finding the right number two next to him? Does that mean that the Browns would probably benefit if you had another one and a half, 1.5 wide receiver? Yes. But I think Amari can function as your guy. And I think Amari, to some degree, has been held back at least recently because the the quarterback position being caught, caught in between Deshaun Jacoby, Joe Flacco, DTR, PJ Walker. I think he's a no-brainer to, to resign this year, and I think he still might have. He's coming off one of his best seasons. I actually think it might be statistically his best season of his career at, uh, at 1,250 yards. I think he could be even more productive. So he produces like a number one, even if he doesn't look like a number one on tape, and I think he might be even more dangerous if you can just get Deshaun healthy and just get Deshaun back to who he was four years ago. 216-474-0092. So Daniel Jeremiah, and I thought the way he put it was really respectful. It's It, it wasn't as simple as, well, he's not a number one wide receiver, which I think can get contentious and it feels like you're you know, slagging a player. But I, I'm curious whether you guys view Amari Cooper as a number one and whether you guys think that at some point the Browns either need to upgrade across from him or next from him. Yeah, it'd be cool. And here's here's the number one thing, by the way, just about that number one thing. Um, it'd be cool if you could get that Jamar Chase, that Justin Jefferson, that one-of-one one guys who changes the way other teams defend you and defend your quarterback. be really cool if you could get that. There's like eight of those guys in the NFL. They don't become available unless something, unless they're like Odell Beckham Jr. Unless they are, um, unless they're Tyreek Hill, 
where it's not entirely just about football. It's about whether a team is comfortable paying those wide receivers for everything that goes with having those wide receivers. So your best chance of finding them is not somebody's going to be like, hey, should we give Cleveland Justin Jefferson? It's going to be, hey, uh, we found this guy in the fourth round, and we think over time he can become a a number one receiver and and change the game for us. Uh, Josh McCown, uh, who spent last year in uh, Carolina, is a quarterback coach before uh, Dave Tepper went on his latest reign of terror and fired a bunch of people because why wouldn't you do that? He's a billionaire, and he's earned that right, and he's smarter than you. But uh, Josh McCown has been named the quarterback's coach for the Minnesota Vikings, and I like that because he's with another former Browns organization member, Kevin O'Connell, the old quarterback's coach, and two – because Josh McCown's still a really good dude. And so we like that. So good news out of the combine there. Uh, I think there's one coordinating opening left in the NFL, and it, it's San Francisco. And it's and that's been open since the day after the Super Bowl, and it's almost like if you scapegoat your defensive coordinator without a plan and basically put it on the defensive coordinator for why you lost the Super Bowl, um, it's almost like you're, it's going to take you a month to find a better defensive coordinator. Or to find the right guy. So, uh, good luck, Kyle Shanahan. Good luck with that. Good luck to you, sir. But we're talking about the uh, Daniel Jeremiah comment on Amari Cooper. And I'm glad we did not get uh, the same level of vitriol on whether Amari is a number one wide receiver or not. But Jack CLE512 saying Amari is a number one receiver. But I don't know if you if it... Uh, does you any favors treating a guy who's over 30 this year as a number one moving forward? I think age is a factor. I mean, I think, you know, there are certain age brackets that when a guy hits a certain age, you start to see that fall off, right? With uh, It's funny, it used to be 30 with running backs. Now it's like 27. Um, Nick Chubb's going to be 29 this year. Uh, Amari, it's anywhere from 31 to 32 for wide receivers. He's going to be 30 this year. So, like, these are these are fair questions, fair concerns to have about his ability to maintain the level of play that he has. Here's a simpler way to ask it. We take off because, again, wide receiver one, wide receiver two, wide receiver 1.5, it's all loaded because it's, it's, it's like a system quarterback for a wide receiver. It's, it's become a way to knock a guy that you think is pretty good, but not. it's also become a way to just knock a guy you just don't like. So, like, when I was saying, guys, I don't think you're winning a Super Bowl with Brock Purdy unless you have the perfect recipe behind him, and even then, I don't think he's a franchise quarterback, so what are you doing with him? Um, the problem with that argument is there were a bunch of people who were on my side who their arguments were just because they didn't like Brock Purdy. Whether it was draftism, whether it was he's an undersized quarterback, whether it's they didn't think he was very good at, at Iowa State, whether it's that they think what he's done is a little flukish, like... I was arguing the right point, but the people around me were a bunch of numbskulls and, and making a good point with bad data or a bad logic behind it. So I kind of feel that way about number one receiver. Here's the simpler way to put it. Can you win a Super Bowl with Amari Cooper as your best receiving weapon? Because I think Amari is a more important receiving weapon than David Njoku. I think David is great yards after catch. I David, I don't think is as explosive as we hoped he is. Like I don't think David is as, and I don't know if it's explosive. Explosive is the right word, but like 
he's a he's a truly he's a top five tight end. I still don't think he's in the same breath with Travis Kelsey. And Travis's ability, and Travis is a little less explosive than he was about four years ago or two years ago, but Travis is one of those tight ends who now he's equally as good because of what he does physically, his size, and the fact that the guy knows the soft spots in the defense. And so the guy consistently goes. That's Honestly, Greg Olson had like a 13-year career in, in the NFL. The last three or four years, he had foot injuries. He was not the same guy athletically. The dude just kept going to the soft spot of the defense. He could pick apart where the coverage, whether it was in zone coverage or even man, he could find the soft spot and the consistently had 600, 700, 800 yard years. So that's a long winded way of saying, I think David's a really, really good player. I don't think David will ever be the best receiving option on a championship team. I don't know Amari will either. I think that's the concern. Now, Maybe if you have another 1.5 receiver, so meaning if you don't have a true number one, if you have two Amari-level players and an Ajoku, I think it's a little different. But I don't think that's like an automatic blank check either. Because and I, and I hate to keep pointing to this because this is the anomaly. Pat Mahomes had four guys that couldn't catch and a fifth guy in Rasheed Rice who isn't there yet. Could be that guy in the future, but he's not that guy now. So Pat Mahomes just won that with that and thirty-five year or thirty-four year old Travis Kelsey. Um, Joe Burrow though does have uh, uh, Jamar Chase and T Higgins. You start to look at the other quarterbacks that are elite in the NFL. Very few have good, not great weapons, or they at least have one elite player. Now the silver lining in all this is, I do think, when it comes to winning a Super Bowl. I'm I'm to see how good or great the weapons around um, Deshaun Watson are when Deshaun Watson's actually the guy you traded for him to be, because he 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 went to uh, he won a playoff game with Kiki Kuti. I'm not making that name up. That's a real name. A dude just somebody decided to name a guy Kiki, and his last name is Kuti. That's a real thing. I'm not making that. Look it up. K e k e c o u t e e. Not since Kiki Mingo, Barkevius Mingo, have I laughed at a person's name. But anyway, he won with that as, as his best uh, weapon. He had an almost 5,000-yard season. Yeah, he had Nuke Hopkins. Nuke Hopkins was great. He also had a lot of success with limited talent around him, wide receiver way. So the ultimate wild card in all of this is the I don't know of this does extend when it comes to do you need a better wide receiver or do you need can Amari be your best receiving option on uh, on a Super Bowl winning team, the ultimate wild card is Deshaun. Because if Deshaun is the guy that he was five years ago, you can win it with uh, – <laughs> I almost said Elijah Moore. That's not fair. You can win with David Ajoku being your best receiving weapon. If Deshaun is only ever going to be 75% of who he was – I thought last year. I thought last year he was 75% of who he had been in uh, Houston. Maybe 70% of who he was in Houston. If that's all he's going to be, at some point you're going to have to get your Jamar Chase. 216-474-0092. Can, can you win a Super Bowl with Amari Cooper as your best wide receiver weapon? And I'm talking about maybe next year. Because once you get into your late, your mid-30s, who the hell knows? 
once he gets to age 33, I don't know. But the same guy that I saw last year, I saw both Joe Flacco and Amari Cooper bring out a different level of dangerous with Amari Cooper than I had seen previously, even in different spurts in Dallas there. But while we're on the topic of the wide receiver conversation, is Amari a one? Can you win a Super Bowl with him as your best wide receiving option or best pass catching option? Uh, Zach Jackson was on the morning show today, and he, for fans clamoring for T. Higgins, for fans clamoring for, um, oh my gosh, Justin Jefferson, he poured a little bit of cold water on that, but also threw out a specific name that that I think, I think kind of points to the question the Browns are trying to answer this offseason at wide receiver. They have to upgrade it again. I know what's been said on the record, and they're not bailing on Cedric Tillman, and I'm not, but you have to be realistic about it. What you brought in last year didn't work, and specifically, Elijah Moore didn't work with the guy who's going to be your quarterback. You know, And Tillman showed a little bit, but not a lot, not enough. So I would say it's not totally closed, but I would be surprised if they ran on like an A-list guy that everybody knows. I just don't think that's realistic, Mike Evans, for multiple reasons. I think you're more in the Darnell Moonies of the world who got injured and got lost in a shuffle, has produced, has made plays down the field because that's what they need. And then I think you're drafting one in the second or third round, almost undoubtedly. Even if you're saying we're good enough to draft for the best player and even if you're saying it's time for us to draft a defensive lineman who's going to be here for years or even an offensive tackle in the right scenario seems unlikely but probably not out of the equation they're going to add to me 70 percent. i guess is the way i would answer it mid-level experienced veteran receiver and then come back in the draft with um you know a player that maybe isn't even in the plans for the first two months but could eventually you know help you in multiple ways now zach went on to talk about a few of the draft picks from last year Ika, he mentioned um cedric tillman and he was a little down on them i I get we'd love if everybody could be Dewan Jones. I'm not all that well I'm not all that way down on Cedric Tillman. Um he needs some seasoning as a wide receiver, but I think if you talk to a lot of guys who don't hit as a rookie, that first off season is where you see a lot of guys make a jump. So I'm not out on Cedric Tillman. I'm not even out on David Bell, nor am I out on Siaki Ika. Um, but I think because you don't have a definitive number two beyond Amari Cooper that is where I think you should be looking for. And, and listen, he mentioned Darnell Mooney, who I've said about 10 times. Um, I think Darnell Mooney would be a great addition. But I don't think anything should stop you from drafting in a loaded wide receiver class the right guy in the 50s or the right guy uh, with your third-round pick. And I think, bottom line, I think you have four guys that are going to be on the roster next year. And they are David Bell, Cedric Tillman, Elijah Moore, and Amari Cooper. And I think for that number two wide receiver spot, I think the best thing you can do is add two more qualified bodies. Darnell Mooney in a second-round draft pick makes sense. Darnell Mooney in a third-round draft pick makes sense. Fourth-round draft pick makes sense. And then basically you say to those guys, it is open season, and whoever wants to be the number two wide receiver will be the number two wide receiver. And... I don't know Cedric Tillman can grab that. I don't know Elijah Moore can grab that. I don't know Darnell Mooney can. But I think that's probably a better structure than forcing a name that I think maybe makes people feel better. And again, I like Mike Evans. I think last year if you had had um, uh, DeAndre Hopkins, if you'd been able to sign him on the open market, I think that would have been a huge help. 
But I think this year it's really important to continue to fit the wide receivers around Deshaun Watson rather than be able to say, hey, we got a number one. Don't you feel good about that? If that guy, I mean, if Justin Jefferson's available for the 2025 first rounder, go get him. I'm not going to hate you for getting uh, that. If, if Mike Evans suddenly the price drops and you can get him on a one- or two-year deal, not going to go ahead and fight you with it. But I think you might actually be better off continuing to add youth to that room, continuing to add competition, depth to that room, and most importantly, whomever you get, whether it's a number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, whatever, gadget player, whomever you get, they they damn well better all have speed. Because the biggest problem with, with uh, David David Bell or Cedric Tillman or even Amari, they're just not guys who are going to get vertical on every single play. You need two or three more of those kind of guys. 216-474-0092. Um, Darnell Mooney, does that name do anything for you when we come back? I know it's not sexy at all, but it, I actually think it would be a good signing. I want to get to what, what Zach Jackson had to say on the morning show today in just one moment. But I think I've reached that. I think we've got to the point, the fever with the, with the Browns backup quarterback spot, how important it is. But some of the takes that I have seen, I mean, and it's not just, it's not just like from the media about the importance of the backup spot. Like I'll get like one to two messages a week from like a, like a friend or like a family member. That's like, Hey, uh, should we make a run at this starting quarterback to be the backup? And I'm like, that's not going to happen. Hey, should the Browns trade up to take a young quarterback at the end of the first round if some of one of these guys falls? Guys, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. Oh, backup quarterback spot is important, but it's not important for the way that everybody thinks it's important. Yes, it's important to have a good backup. The Browns have already showed you how badly, and I'm saying this with respect because they got so much right here. They've already shown you how they can mess up or how the wrong backup quarterback can can disrupt your season. But Zach Jackson was on with the morning boys, Ken and Anthony today, talking about uh, one familiar name the Browns could bring back at backup. You know, I, I think there's a chance that they are going to go get Jacoby Brissett and bring him back. Whoa. They have to have a veteran backup quarterback. They have to. So the DTR thing is over. They they lost confidence in him. They or they don't think he's no. that good. No, but any fair, he's a great kid and he made strides. But any fair evaluation of where he is and where the Browns are would say that he can't be your number two quarterback. They learned that last year. Yeah. Right? Come on. He played and he improved, and that's what you want. He was drafted with the thought that he could become the long-term backup and that he would cost nothing for his four years. So they're going to go into this with a quarterback budget, you know, and I don't know who's going to fit it. I don't know if they have that one guy, specifically the one I mentioned, at a certain number that they're going to get. I think the only way Flacco comes back is if they get past that number and then just things move down the road. So the one area that I do disagree on the DTR thing is just because it was so, like – Evaluating DTR, a fifth-round rookie who is adapting the NFL and his ability when the first crack he got was four games into his rookie season, I I can't put a lot of stock into that. Even, even what he did against Pittsburgh into the Denver game, he played another game and a quarter. We agree that you can't go ahead and just, he can't be the only guy on the roster, he can't be the, the backup, but this idea that the kid can't get better, or in the three games that he played, we can't, we didn't see growth, and that he actually might be closer to being ready to be the backup. I do struggle with that a little bit, 
And I just think we get really close-minded in football about how quickly a guy's good at football. And if they're not good right out of the we, – we jump to he's either a bust or he's not going to be what you want him to be. And I just – I think there are countless guys in this draft class. I think DTR has a chance to be what you drafted him to be. I think Cedric Tillman has a chance to develop. I think uh, Ika has a chance to develop. You've got plenty of guys. Elijah McGuire, I actually really like Elijah. Now, there's a difference between, yeah, let's give him a chance to develop and let's build the offseason around it. I will tell you, I don't get this fascination with Jacoby Brissett. I just don't. He's a really nice guy, great guy. I think he is a serviceable backup. But just because you had success with him in Kevin Stefanski's offense two years ago doesn't mean he fits what you're going to do going forward. And two years ago, the Browns, and, and this was, a, it's either a um, Kevin Stefanski problem or it's a uh, Andrew Barry problem or it's both. Or maybe Paul DePodesta swooped in from San Diego to go ahead and screw this decision up. But two years ago, I don't care how good Jacoby Brissett played. Uh, the Browns were a below 500 team when Deshaun Watson came back and um, he walked into an offense that didn't suit him. And they did that because they had built the offense for 11 weeks around Jacoby Brissett. And they did that thinking they were only going to have to start Jacoby for six games. And then the, the suspension got pushed to 11 games. Well, it got pushed to one thing, and then, you know, the point is it, it got negotiated down to 11 games. And two years ago, the Browns chose the a good quarterback but a bad fit for your offense which put Deshaun in an awful position coming off rust, coming off uh, everything that he had, all the allegations, all the stuff that would affect a normal human being when accused of, all the disruption of his life, being traded, new town, all that stuff. And because of that, they that offense with six games to go didn't fit him in any way, shape, or form. And the excuse was, well, I mean, it's a little tough to change the game with six games to go. Wouldn't have been tough if you had chosen a quarterback in a spread offense. Wouldn't have been tough if two years ago you had seriously invested in a quarterback that actually fit the profile of your starting quarterback. And so I get it, man. We love Jacoby Brissett. He really is a good dude. I think Jacoby Brissett, in a place with more of a pocket quarterback or more of the the, the system that Kevin Stefanski did run, I think Jacoby Brissett makes tremendous success for that and makes tremendous sense. Same with Joe Flacco. This isn't anti-Flacco, anti-Jacoby. It's anti-bringing guys who don't have the similar skill set or who don't who will not succeed in a similar offense as Deshaun Watson. Because this time, if Deshaun starts 11 games and then Jacoby has to take over, uh, Jacoby has a little bit more scheme versatility than Joe Flacco at this point. This time you reverse the roles, uh, Jacoby's going to look as bad as Deshaun did. Fit and system fit matters. And the ability to to succeed in a spread offense matters. But what I think at the heart of the excitement and Ken Carmen's whoa about Jacoby Brissett coming back, which but you know again not to pick nits here because they they actually Keith edited out. Keith, can you confirm you edited out the bigger whoa? Yeah. Okay. It, it was, was uh, somewhat distracting. It was a little too much for me. I, I'm not criticizing. I love the whoa. I think it works. It's very effective. This is not a back who probably shouldn't be back is not worth a, the original woe, which you heard, and then a secondary Lima and Ken woe together. All right? I'm not I'm not the woe police here. All right? 
I'm not woke. Eh? Okay, that wasn't great. We'll stick and move. But I'm just saying it was a little much. That being said, um, I don't think Jacoby Brissett makes any sense. I don't think Joe Flacco makes any sense. But we trust both of those guys more than we trust the Deshaun situation. And I think that's at the heart of this. And I think, I almost feel like for us, us the fans, I feel like Joe and Jacoby are like a whoopee. They're like, they're like a little blankie. It's a security blankie that because we don't trust Deshaun Watson to stay healthy or play well, in the back of our mind, we need the peace of mind of Joe Flacco or Jacoby Brissett. And I totally get it because Joe Flacco had a really nice final five games of the season, and let's not talk about the playoffs. But Joe Flacco in five games, guys, it was fun. What is it, 6% touchdown percentage? That's huge. I don't think any quarterback since 1999 has had a across 18 or across 17 games has had 6% touchdown percentage. He also had a 3% interception percentage, but we forget about that because that's okay. It's interceptions are okay if you like the guy, but like, yeah, that was cool. Okay. Now repeat it. I don't think Joe Flacco's walking into a spread system and having the same success. And if they're going to use the backup quarterback as an excuse to not fully integrate a new offense that fits Deshaun at some point it's on you dog like at some point you got to do the thing to win and if you just keep saying well we're going to build a new offense or we're going to do this prove it to me with your backup quarterback Marcus Mariota I have zero connection to Marcus Mariota he's probably a better fit for you than um Joe Flacco or Jacoby Brissett is why because you're going to run a similar that's why uh, that's why Philadelphia moved on from Gardner Minshew a couple years ago and brought in Marcus Mariota because Marcus Mariota skill set wise is closer to Jalen Hurts. His comfort in an offense is closer to than what Gardner Minshew runs, except when Gardner Minshew plays against the Cleveland Browns and all of a sudden looks like crazy legs Hirsch out there deciding to run around and, and actually look like an option quarterback at points. Still mystifying. I don't know what the hell was happening in that game. However, I mean, I think, I think so much of our want to have Joe Flacco and Jacoby back has everything to do with our mistrust of Deshaun. And I think we should be thinking about this differently. If the Browns actually do the thing they should have done three years ago, which is strip it down to its bare parts, rebuild the offense in in the name, image, and likeness of Deshaun Watson, if you're going to do that, then you need to have a backup that also fits um, the stripped down name, image, and likeness of Deshaun Watson. Marcus Mariota is the obvious guy, but there are other guys who can run RPO concepts. There are other guys who are going to be more comfortable in a spread-out offense, and that means those are the right guys moving forward. Because just because it worked in the Kevin Stefanski offense with scripted plays and working under the center, or working under center and all that other stuff, doesn't mean it's going to work going forward. And if it does, it probably means the Browns didn't do the thing they should do, which is, I don't know, build an offense around uh, Deshaun Watson like he had in Houston. At which point, that would be three years, and at which point I will turn from really appreciating Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry to screaming about them again, which I personally don't want. I have enough to scream about. 216-474-0092. Um, when it comes to those names, uh, Joe Flacco, Jacoby Brissett, and Joe was mentioned by Mary Kay Cabot of uh, the plane deal along with Zadaria Smith talking about that they're going to head into free agency, but basically the Browns are opening to bring them back. 
this is not the emotional. I'm not speaking to the emotional connection. I also view Joe Flacco as a whoopee. I really like Joe Flacco. So I, I couldn't be mad if Joe Flacco was back. But I'd also have to admit, I don't think he fits the offense that, that fits Deshaun. And if you're in, so either you're going to put him in an offense he doesn't fit, or you're going to put him or Jacoby Brissett into an offense that fits them that doesn't fit Deshaun, at which point mean Nick Wilson comes out again. This is the offseason. This, this is your winter in the desert. This is your moment to finally become a man. And by coming a man, I'm talking about it's finally time to, to pull out all the brakes and throw it all out there on the field and give Deshaun every option and this offense every option. If you've got two quarterbacks that fit different systems, you're going to be, you're in one way or another, you're going to be shooting yourself in the foot again. I, I think it'd be better to have DTR as the backup going forward than bringing in a guy that doesn't fit, a la bringing back Jacoby or Joe. It's funny. Uh, Keith, Keith, you're, you were right on the Twitter poll that we put out because you just put Kyrie Irving, Kevin Love. Who was the third name? Tristan. And Tristan. Then other and then the other. other as who is the second most beloved member of the Cavs 2015-2016 uh, title team. I just I didn't put any options. I just let people respond to their own volition and everybody's saying JR. Like there's a few RJs. There's a few Channing Fries. There's a few, I think, one or two Kyries, one or two Kevs. But, like, then you look over at your Twitter poll, and maybe it's because they're not thinking, they're not seeing, like, J.R. Smith. But is Kyrie still winning? By the, I should ask you that. Uh, Kevin Love has a slight lead, 42.5%. Kyrie is right there at 41.9%. So, so it's, basically, it's basically about a dead heat between the two. Well, and basically 84% of how many votes? Uh, but about 900, about 900 have said one of the two appropriate answers. And I realize beloved opens up a different kind of connotation, but we'll get back to that coming up in the six o'clock hour. And there's been something that I heard on this station and it's been a few weeks and the person who uttered it is actually going to be on the show tomorrow. And the, from five o'clock on that I totally understand why the person is saying what they're saying. It's also recency bias. And it's a perfect day to have the conversation with Kyrie back in town. But I just tweeted this out. I made sure. I, Kayla, have you seen it yet? Okay. So I was driving around doing my errands, um, trying to to get ready mentally and physically for the show today, doing my best not to take a nap after the kids got on the bus. I'm trying to break that bad habit. And I'm, I'm, I'm running around doing errands. And there's a red car. And I, it was a Ford. I can't remember what it was. It was one of those little hatchback things. It's one of those ones where you look at it, you can't tell whether it's a small SUV or like a big sedan with a hatchback. It was one of those. It's not great. It's not. It's not. It's not a car Nick Wilson would ever own. Not that that's a high standard. Um, I did own a, a 1986 Toyota Camry with no brakes once, and lived to tell the day. However, I, I saw it. And I didn't think anything of it, and then I looked on the back window of the hatchback. It says "Finally Divorced." in all ex with exclamations on it. And then you look over to the window on the driver's side in the in the back seat and it says guess who's divorced question mark with arrows pointing to the front seat. And I've I will admit I'm having a, a little bit of of trouble di dissecting this. I just want to start we're going to open it up to Kayla and Keith. This feels a little bit like doing too much for me. Granted, I've never been divorced, 
This feels a little too petty even for divorce. Am I wrong on this one? No, and I actually tweeted you back that I, I once drove by a house. This has been like a year or two ago that had block letters spelled out in the front yard. You know how some people celebrate like a 40th birthday or 50th yeah. and they put like a surprise block letters out in the front yard. This person had block letters saying divorced, and I think it might have been AF afterwards, you know, what that stands for. <laughs> but it was displayed right in the front yard for everybody that drove by. It's like uh-huh. you're celebrating it that much that you had to tell everybody that drives by that you just got divorced. So listen, I think there are scenarios where um, where I think this is appropriate, right? Where I can I can totally, and I do not know, understand the context or know the context of this person's marriage to where somebody would write finally divorced. The finally feels like just recently divorced, not very personal. Um, hey, I got divorced. Doesn't feel very personal. Finally divorced. By the way, did you catch what it says in the very right corner of the back window? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Celebrate it even more. I said, hell yeah. <laughs> All right, was that the same writing? Yes. And I can't even tell that. Well, it's, oh it's very small. Okay. I didn't, in the right corner. I didn't know if somebody else had, man, you zoomed in on that. Keith is the assassin. Um. There's just something about saying finally divorced as like, man, I put this off for a long time because I was worried about it. But now that I am bleep that person um, here's OK. Can I tell you where the kernel of doubt comes from last week? I think it was last week. I don't know. Time is a flat circle. Last week, I shared the dilemma about going on the vacation with the with the friend who I can't stand. Uh, so it's not my friend. It's Vanessa's friend wanted to go to a, a family vacation together. And I cannot stand this person. Uh, there are very few people. I, I can pretty much get along with anyone. But when I don't get along with you, it ain't happening. There have been two people I've worked with in radio who it just ain't happening. It never happened. It was never going to happen. They're on my no-fly list. Don't want to be in the same room with them. That's two people. Think of how many damn people I've worked with in radio, by the way. There might be more people who feel that way about me than I feel about them, but um, this is my no-fly list for, for for mutual friends. And the reason why I'm bringing her up is she recently got separated, and she did something very similar. And so I might be transferring my dislike of that person onto this person because it was like, yeah, your husband is a little bit lazy, yeah. Yeah, but like he never cheated. He never abused her. They was just they just weren't compatible. And she acted like she just got out of Shawshank. She was on what was was the where was what, she was like red at the end of uh, Shawshank, where like she's walking up to Andy Dufresne on the beach and they're just smiling at each other. I, and I was like, okay, yeah, I mean you guys weren't compatible, but like he wasn't that bad of a dude. I didn't like him either, but like I just thought you guys fit together because I didn't like both of you. So, like, some of this is absolutely, like, I, oh, man, I'm getting real judgy. My 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 Catholic roots are really going to show up here. I think it hits a line where it get, becomes tacky. This uh-huh. picture that you posted I don't think is tacky. Okay, wait, wait, explain that. How is, because it's every damn, because I, by the way, what you don't see is, because I didn't take the other picture. If you go on the other side of the car, it's more, ha she's divorced. If it's, it were, it's, like, it's, pictures uh, of her husband out there with, like, X's over his eyes like that would be too much <laughs> but like what Keith said about somebody putting it in their yard and it's the these huge things with all these signs and like that's that's kind of tacky because your neighbors you know at least she's driving around and I mean I guess I actually neighbors- think I think the specificity of being in your own neighborhood is really funny 
<laughs> that because then then people are gonna be like, oh, Doug. Oh, wow. Doug's out. They're going to want the gossip. Yeah, well, no, but the point is, like, there's no running from it. You're letting, <laughs> this is just a person, like, randomly driving around town and people are like, whoo, you got out, girl. Like, at least with Doug, I know the context, right? At least with your neighborhood, you're like, yeah, he was a bit of an a-hole. He, he didn't, he never returned my leaf blower. You know what I mean? Like, you have, like, am I supposed to feel like, because you know what it is, and in, in fairness, we do this with all of our friends. Even if you remain friends with both parties in a divorce, someone does get more judgment than the other one. All right. In this case, I don't like that. She's so over the top with it that I'm automatically assuming she's the one that should be relieved to have the divorce. Like, it's almost like she's painting herself as like the, the, um, victim, yeah, the victim of the in marriage. It. And I would like to know more about the other person. And I'm assuming it's a guy. I shouldn't assume that. I want to know what the other person was that we are finally divorced. I think you're mostly butthurt that you can't get the context. Yes. Why, why are you, uh, by the way, assuming that maybe, what if this was a guy? That is not a man's car. No. Why? Do you, how can you say that? Because. The South Carolina pink tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the other thing. That was another thing that was actually pointed out about this, that it had to be somebody from my old stomping grounds. And, uh, yeah. Now, everybody that has gone to South Carolina has that sticker. So it doesn't mean they're from there? Because no. I forgot because I put a it heart over there. It just means they there. went there once. Um, all right. Let's get back to the the thing here. You're not wrong. I, and it's not – I don't care. I just, like – I kind of feel like if you are saying finally divorced – that other person better have been a real bastard. Or I hope so. And no, no, not gonna go there. Not gonna let that tiger out of the cage. 216-474-0092. You guys can check out uh at Nick Wilson says on uh on X. I've I've put this out there of a person who on their back driver window in their little stupid Ford said and that's uh, that's not my judgment of them. They're I just that's a dumb car. I hate that car. Um I've had to drive in that car before once. And it was, I was borrowing somebody's car. I did not like that. It wasn't this person, though. But they put finally divorced in their back window on the uh, driver's side uh, back seat window. It said, guess who's divorced? There is a part of me that I want to make sure I'm siding with the right person. A few years ago, we talked about um, someone had seen a car that said girls trip going out of town for a bachelorette party. And then they had their Venmo or their cash app handle on there because mm-hmm. they expected people to like, chip in and send them money how do you feel about that no no i'm gonna need to know more on it yeah like when somebody's like hey i just graduated woo venmo me eh, here's five bucks you want them to write their here's here's a single cocktail at a dive bar get your get your drink on they're graduating college of course not high school i'm not trying to get arrested here but but no like this is listen i like to make sure i'm on the right side of history and it is my personal experience that the people who celebrate the loudest about being divorced are often the people who don't own why they are divorced. Access powers. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I don't want to throw all judgment because I think divorce is totally legitimate. I do. But it is the people that have chirped the loudest and been like, I just dropped 200 pounds of dead weight that maybe didn't realize they were a little dead weighty too. There's a part of me that, again, if he's a skullduggery, if he's a son of a you-know-what, okay, celebrate, girl. Woo, girl. And, it, hey, if it just didn't work out, there's a, it's a, 
Maybe it's the Midwest roots. If it just didn't work out, I can't imagine her celebrating it. Okay. Or they could also be a terrible person. By the way, another angle that we didn't even talk about in this picture. What's that? Did you notice where the car's at? Uh, Let me see here. No. It's at a spa. Yeah, that makes sense. So they're celebrating divorce even more by going to get a massage. Yeah. That is, uh, by the way, the best divorce ever was Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, Mackenzie, who got $80 billion and immediately gave like like 50% of it away and admitted she was like, yeah, I went to like a like a vacation island somewhere and just chilled for a week. I'm like, that's how you do it. That, see, that, not loud. Gave it away to charity, peaced out, focused on the kids. That's where I'm about. There's just something about advertising it. It's a little not Midwestern. Can I also say, if I saw this in South Carolina or if I saw this in North Carolina, I'd be like, we're in the South. Things are different here. In in Ohio, we're just a little more humility, a little more humbleness. All right, check out that picture. At Nick Wilson says, Kyrie is one of those players that there are nights where he'll just go off and it's really special. And Kyrie's one of the guys that as long as the Cavs win, I want to see Kyrie do Kyrie things. Like he still is, and it's so funny because so much of the the sideshow stuff has, or his his off court stuff has overtaken. He's still one of the three best finishers in the NBA, and I guarantee you, if you started asking people five best point guards, I actually don't know how many people would even say Kyrie anymore because of the health issues and because of the chucklehead stuff. But like, yeah, I'm kind of rooting to see a Kyrie show tonight. Like I was when whenever Steph's in town, I root for like a fifty point Steph night, but Cavs win. Like when LeBron's in town, man, it'd be really cool to watch LeBron do LeBron stuff for three and a half quarters and then the Cavs win. I think Kyrie's there. And here's the other thing, because we talked about Kyrie, and I I I wanna I wanna double back on this before we get to a take that I have literally been waiting a three weeks probably to react to. Let me see. Math. It's 21 days. It's literally three weeks on the dot. Look at that. Didn't even know that going in. Luck of the draw. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all night or for another uh, 57 minutes. But um, as we've been talking about Kyrie, I think the only remaining, I think there's a smattering. I think there's 10% of people who are tired of Kyrie's BS off the court. I think the other 90% of people who are, are not happy when he's in town and who have hard feelings against Kyrie, I think blame him for the end of the Cavs title hopes. And I, and I, I do think it's a fair thing to have. I think I think mostly like I put, I put it 50, 50, I put 50 on Kyrie for being Kyrie and, and in the middle of a title run three years in going, I want my own team. When you had your own team three years previously and the best you had done was 32 wins. Yeah. The other thing was Dan Gilbert didn't have to trade him. And I think, you know, we got into the great what ifs. We, uh, I can't remember what it was. Oh, somebody quoted, you know, what are the biggest what if in sports? And so I had quote tweeted and said, what are the biggest what ifs in Cleveland sports? And I think one of the biggest what ifs, and I, nobody did this. Um, what if LeBron had say the first time I got, what if you had traded LeBron, uh, Kevin Love for Paul George in 2017? There were a lot of of good what if centered around the second LeBron run or LeBron run in Cleveland. You know, the one that I don't think got nearly, I mean, I don't, I can't remember a single person that actually said this. What if Kyrie wasn't traded? Cause I don't know you're beating him in 2018. I think Kyrie, LeBron and Kevin Love do make it like a, like a better chance at competing against Golden State. 
But I think there's a really good chance that if you had kept the team together for five years, that that 2018-2019 title is yours. And I think the longer you had Kyrie on the team, you know what the other thing is? If the bubble happens, I think the bubble was designed for a player like LeBron. And that was another year where there was no more, like, there was really the, the end of the super teams had kind of come, so that's another chance. I, I think if Kyrie never forces his way out and Dan Gilbert acquiesces, um, I think you have maybe two more titles in Cleveland, which not only does that change LeBron's legacy, then LeBron would have more titles in Cleveland than in Miami. Then LeBron could have gone off to L.A. and done diddly whatever the hell he wanted to. But like, I think we've, I think I finally made it back around to the point with Kyrie, and and a lot of this is he's knocked off the things that annoy me. I don't hear a lot of uh, Kyrie's chirping. I, I'm excited to watch Kyrie tonight, and I think it's funny because we're finally getting to the take that three weeks ago I didn't agree when I heard it on the station, and three weeks later as we have. Kyrie coming back to town for what I believe is effectively the 17th time and he's been back in Cleveland since he was traded. Um, I actually do disagree with it uh, more. And Danny Cunningham, who you know does part-time work for us with hosting and all this other stuff, Danny was on at the very beginning of Anthony Lima's uh, leave when Lima went out uh, to have uh, little Luigi Lima. Uh, that their their baby boy. That's not his real name, but I wish it were Luigi because I think it just sounds uh, really funny. Danny was filling in, and and Ken and and Danny got into a debate about Donovan's place in Cavs history, and it directly rebutted or buffed up against uh, Kyrie's. There's a big difference between greatest and best. I think for greatest, you have to have longevity. You have to have winning. I think Donovan Mitchell's the second best player to ever play for the Cavs. He's not the second greatest. I think there's a big Ooh, boy, difference that's there. That's a hell of a conversation. Yeah. Like, I think he's Woo! better at basketball. Donovan Mitchell's number two already? I think he's better at basketball than anyone other than LeBron. He's not the second greatest He's Cavs. better than Kyrie? I think so, yeah. I think Donovan Mitchell on the Cavs is a better basketball player Don't than Kyrie was. think about – okay, you said was. He's better than Kyrie was at that time. Kyrie was pretty damn good. Yeah, dude. Donovan Mitchell is incredible. <laughs> Donovan Mitchell is incredible. I believe Ken was getting a colonoscopy during that interview, which led to the sound that he made wow. kind of at the end there. Um, so I've thought a lot about this. Listen, if we get to the second greatest, it is it, – it's Kyrie. Um, all due respect to Brad Doherty, Larry Nance, um, Larry Nance Jr., Brad, uh, Mark Price, Fat Sean Kemp. All due, all due respect to Austin Carr, Mr. Cavalier himself. All due respect to Mike Mitchell. All due respect to all the greats, to Zadrunas, to um, Dion Waiters, to Scott Pollard, all the Cavs that came before. All due respect to all, anybody that rightfully has the claim. Kevin Love, too. Now to Darius. Now potentially to Evan. Um, Kyrie Irving is the second greatest Cavalier of all time. So Danny agrees, by the way. Danny's. I think Danny did a beautiful job at laying out the difference between greatest and best. I just think Kyrie Irving... I think Kyrie Irving is every bit as good as Donovan Mitchell, and I think he's better. Um, I think Kyrie Irving is a better shooter than Donovan Mitchell was. I think Kyrie Irving is a better uh, finisher at the rim than Donovan is. I think we could probably, I can't believe I'm saying this now, 
we could have a legitimate conversation about who the better facilitator is, but Kyrie's a legitimately great ball handler and and a tremendous, tremendous facilitator. So if like and we're not going to compare defense. I'm sorry. So if it comes down to from a skill set standpoint, Kyrie is the better player than Donovan. Donovan averages more points, but like Kyrie, Kyrie hasn't beat on a lot of the different skill set things that we talk about who's the better player. Now, if you want to say Donovan is better at playing winning basketball, I actually think that's where the conversation lies. But I think it's a tougher conversation to have because it's also very impossible to prove. Like, I think Kyrie's numbers did take a backseat when, when LeBron was here. So I think even if you just want to say, well, Kyrie's averaging 23 points per game in his career, Donovan's averaging 25 points per game. Um, Kyrie never averaged, what is Donovan, averaged 28 points per game in the last two years. Kyrie never averaged 28 points a game. The highest he averaged was like 27.4. I think Kyrie Irving, as of right now, is the most underrated Cavalier. And I'm talking about whether we're talking the greatest or the best. I think if, in talking about what ifs, I think if LeBron never comes home and you sign Gordon Hayward in 2014 and you, you slowly build that team, there were, still, there were still some real issues because Tristan Thompson wasn't end up truly being worthy of a fourth pick in the draft. Deion Waiters never became what you thought Deion was going to become. So Kyrie and Gordon probably doesn't lead to an NBA championship, but Kyrie, Gordon, and Kevin Love – might get you close. And I think the irony of Kyrie in Boston is Kyrie robbed himself of the greatest legacy moment he could have ever had, which is of being the guy on a championship contending team. Boston was set up to be his guy. Jason Tatum was year one in the NBA. Jalen Brown was year two. Now, Kyrie injury got in the way. But he decided to go to Brooklyn for four years and waste a lot of time and earn a lot of money and piss a lot of people off. But I think when it comes to the best, I think Danny is drastically underrating Kyrie. And I think Donovan, I think Donovan's a great regular season player. When it comes to, I I need to see, because again, now we're starting to blur the lines of greatest versus best. But I think Kyrie skill set wise was the better player offensively I'm not grading two undersized guards but like I think I also think Kyrie had a a definitive position I think Kyrie was a point guard so I think that helps whereas Donovan being a ball dominant guard it's a little more difficult because is he a point guard is he a two guard and now we have the overlap with Darius so maybe that's recency bias I think for Donovan Mitchell to become the second best or second greatest Cavalier either way you define it I think Donovan Mitchell needs to be here longer than two years. I think he needs to have more success. I think he needs to prove he's a winning player beyond the regular season. And two years in, man, I love what Donovan's about. He's a much better teammate than Kyrie ever was. Two years in, I don't find myself as frustrated with Donovan than I felt those first couple years before LeBron came back. So I think when it comes to who's easier to root for, it is Donovan. When it comes to shooting, it's it's Kyrie. When it comes to finishing at the rim, it's Kyrie. When it comes to the handle, it's Kyrie. 
when it comes to, as a facilitator, it's Kyrie. Yeah, Donovan's got him on points per game. That's about it. But when it comes to the second best player, the seven years Kyrie was here, math is hard, six years Kyrie was here, I don't think right now Donovan Mitchell stacks up if we just go, whether it's skill set, whether it's what he's accomplished in the regular season, any of it. And it's unfortunate because, honestly, like I can't hold the first three years of Kyrie where he scored a lot of points and he was the best player on a bad team. I can't hold that against him. In the same way, I can't hold it against him because he didn't score more points when he was sharing the ball with LeBron James. 216-474-0092. And that actually is why Kyrie's the second best. Donovan Mitchell has not proven he can go and shift from being the alpha dog on a good team to being a second banana on a great team. Kyrie did that. Kyrie did that four years into his NBA career, and he was in the NBA Finals. And God knows what will happen if he doesn't bust up his knee in the first game of the 2015 NBA Finals. Yet again, another what if where if he stays healthy in that series, I think the Cavs have one more NBA title. So I know we're I, uh, to, if you didn't hear what Danny said, uh, Danny said that he thinks Donovan is already the second best Cavs player over Kyrie Irving. And he says, even if Kyrie might be the greatest. So Kyrie has all the accolades, all that. Do you agree? Has Donovan already surpassed Kyrie in terms of the better player at their absolute best than Kyrie was here? It's just tough. One, it's tough to separate greatest from best. Two, I think we're forgetting how freaking magic Kyrie was for most of his time here in Cleveland. For as much as as certain people in town bleep talk Kyrie Irving, I'm telling you right now today, if the Cavs the last two years didn't have the run they had had and you had a chance to bring back Kyrie Irving, I understand it's now much more of a loaded question. I guarantee you if the Cavs were bad, we'd be all behind that now. And it's funny because, you know, we're we're reacting to, to Danny Cunningham. This was back on February 16th. I've been waiting to have this conversation. And Danny actually, I think, is going to join us in the 5 and 6 o'clock hour tomorrow. So we might actually bring this back tomorrow because I want to get more of his explanation. But basically, he said, if the question isn't the greatest, the second greatest Cavalier of all time with LeBron atop, if it's the best, he thinks Donovan has already surpassed Kyrie as the second best Cavalier. Greatest is about infamous playoff moments. Greatest is about... All the other kind of things. How long you played here. Best is about who's the better player. And I kind of went through it. I'm like, from a skill set standpoint, Kyrie beats Donovan on most of the like major things. Better ball handler. Um, better facilitator. Sorry, be- better handle, I should say. Better finisher at the rim. So he was a three-level scorer. Better shooter, just in general. Donovan's a, a really nice mid-range shooter. Sorry, I'm now going to completely butcher the way I'm going to talk about this Donovan has become a much better shooter he's still a good very good three-point shooter Kyrie's an elite three-point shooter even now I think Kyrie's shooting something I actually have it right here yeah Kyrie's shooting basically 40 percent from three for his career Donovan's shooting 36 and a half percent so he's a better shooter he's a better overall scorer I mean one of the three or four best finishers at the rim Kyrie is in the last decade. Um, he's one of the most electric players in the NBA. And we can make the question, we can have the conversation about, well, was he on enough? In Cleveland, guys, we never experienced what happened in Boston. 
We never experienced what happened in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, Kyrie became a different player. He didn't look as interested in playing in the game. Kyrie looked bored in Brooklyn. And he, and Kevin Durant did too. They looked like they just wanted to get to the postseason. I'm going to play 20 regular season games. I'll talk to you. In, in May, the problem is they didn't build enough winning habits in that time to then go win, to actually go out into the postseason and do something significant. But I, so I, I made the comment about, I just think Kyrie, I, I, whether it's greatest or best, however you declare that, if it's greatest, Kyrie played here longer, Kyrie won a title, Kyrie made the most important shot in Cavs history. If it's the best, Kyrie skill-wise is better at all the major things that a, that a small combo-ish guard or point guard needs to be able to do. So maybe Donovan's scoring more points now, like per game, 28 points per game, than Kyrie did in Cleveland. Uh, Donovan's never had to share the ball with LeBron James. And so I'm just trying to find a way in which Donovan has surpassed Kyrie in this short a time in either one of those categories. Danny's saying it's in the best. Well, Luxford on Twitter saying, well, leadership and the ability to play a team first game. Kyrie went full Ricky Davis in the 2017 finals, turned into a selfish player, wanted to leave to have his own team, and it couldn't have been much worse and will never will never, could never be the number one on an NBA team. I mean, there are people in the NBA who don't think Donovan can be the number one on, on a championship team. I, I don't know that I agree with those. I think the talent you have around him really does matter. But I think, I actually think both Kyrie and Donovan have the killer instinct. And I, I'll be honest with you. I don't think it's fair to hold, if we're, to, if we're talking about true best player in Cavs history, second best player in Cavs history, I think it's right to to hold whatever weird dynamic Kyrie had with LeBron and Dan Gilbert over him. Not eight years later, or seven years later. I, I think Kyrie is, I think he's the second best and the second greatest player in Cavs history. Whether we love him as much as we love Donovan, well, that's a different thing. But if Donovan wants to be the second best or the second greatest, whichever one, and again, if I'm if I'm confusing the hell out of you, I'm sorry. I am using them. I, I'm 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 trying to say in both scenarios, I feel like the answer is Kyrie. But the idea that Kyrie, in terms of his ability to play a team first game, I I guess we just missed any one of the three year title runs. And yeah, Kyrie in the 2017 NBA Finals, that was not the best Kyrie we had seen. Two rounds before, he was pretty darn good. Most of that regular season, he was pretty darn good. The 2016 NBA Finals, he played a... I mean, there were moments where LeBron would go out there and score 50, and then Kyrie came back in the next game and put something up. So that was as yin and yang. There were multiple times, I mean, countless times in the three years where those two played together where one where Kyrie deferred to LeBron. Is that not team first? So... I think we're all wrong on Kyrie. And I think, you know, we started this show, or sorry, we started the 3 o'clock hour with a uh, yet another Twitter poll that we put out there, Afternoon 923 Fan, where we had asked, who is the second most beloved Cavs player from the 2016 championship team? And we put Kyrie Irving up, Kevin Love up, Tristan Thompson, or other. And what's wild about this is that this answer has changed five times over since the Cavs won the title. And when I threw this out, like I, we, some of the responses, we've definitely got Delhi. I love Delhi. He has no rightful claim to be the second most beloved player from that championship team. 
I love J.R. Smith. Um, if this was who is the second most beloved bong ripper from that team, it would be J.R. Smith. I love Channing Fry. I love Richard Jefferson. Every, very few times, guys, do we ever say, man, that was a team win. Literally, to come back 3-1 against a 73-win team, you needed every single person to win the to win the thing. But when all is said and done, 10 years from now, when Kyrie comes back and his jersey's retired, the rightful second most beloved player from that team is the second best player and second greatest player from that team. It's Kyrie Irving. Because, because we never got to see another Kyrie team that was Kyrie-specific without LeBron, because we never got to see that, people have used that to kind of weaponize against Kyrie. This isn't about what happened in Boston. It's not what happened in Brooklyn. Kyrie Irving was elite and electric for the last three years he was here. Do I, do I sometimes still go, man, bleep that dude? Because he broke up the Beatles. He's the he's the Cavs' own Yoko Ono. And the next year I had to watch Dwayne Wade and Derrick Rose and Jordan Clarkson and Larry Nance Jr., who I still love. Um, and, oh, my God, George Hill. Am I a little bitter about that? Yeah. You know what we should also be bitter about? What a god-awful trade. The Cavs swung for one of the best players in the NBA because of desperation. Because you dealt with Danny Ainge, and Danny Ainge hardlined you. And I guess I'll take Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder, who doesn't fit next to LeBron, and um, and Ante Zizic, and a 2018 first-rounder. I guess that's more important than retaining an elite player or giving my coach and my star player a chance to, to keep that thing together. Uh, right now at afternoon drive – sorry, afternoon 923 fan. One of these days I will get it right multiple times in a segment. Um about 950 votes in, 43% saying Kyrie Irving is the second most beloved Cavaliers team for the 2016 championship team. You guys feel, okay, I threw this out as well. I, I think a Jim Tomey moment would go a long way for this town where at the end of his career, Kyrie comes back and is like a bench player but hits like a key three-pointer in like a second-round playoff series where like with Jim Tomey's big home run, um, how that, like, when he hit that home run, it was like you could feel it was like that home run unlocked forgiveness and sprinkled it over Cleveland. I kind of think that would go a long way for Kyrie, regardless. When he hangs it up and whenever the Cavs decide it's time to hang up, to hang his jersey in the rafters, um, you're going to cheer. And if you don't, I think you're probably ungrateful. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. T-Mobile.com. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.